You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right, I want I want everybody to listen real like what's this noise? Isn't that satisfying? Don't think I'm actually holding a firearm cuz I don't think the federal government regards these as firearms. Really? They're wrong about a that. Different, I, think, <laughs> I think it's like a different set of rules. It's a it's a replica of it. We're, we're we're visiting with Michael Punk, who wrote The Revenant, um, and has a forthcoming book. No, it's now. Yes, now. The last time uh, Michael Punk was on, he teased his next book, which is called Ridgeline, and he was being uh, he was being diplomatic, but also a good salesman, and didn't like lay the whole thing out. <laughs> Save some for later about Ridgeline. Um, and so he's here to talk with us about Ridgeline. And he brought a couple show-and-tell pieces. And Arrow, uh, circa, I don't know, is it? can you get specific? Uh, not too specific. It's I think it's designed to look like the arrows that they would have had in the 1860s, for example. And I think it's probably pretty accurate. It's got a, a, uh, a manufactured metal... Arrowhead, which yeah. would be accurate for that era. Yeah, steel trade point, yeah. you always hear him referred to. Exactly. Yeah. But otherwise, I think it was, uh, there was an attempt made to, to use the traditional style of, of building the arrow. So, yeah. And this year, pistol. That pistol, which would have been comparable to the ones used by the officers and 
uh, non-commissioned officers, uh, non-commissioned officers in the in the infantry or in the cavalry especially. And it's a it's a replica of an 1851 36 caliber Colt. Cap and ball. Shoots 36 caliber lead ball out of it. That's right. If I was going to like line up guns that I, if I had to get hit by one, I don't know. I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't relish getting hit by this one, <laughs> but there's worse things to get hit by. Well, they, by the time they got around to the, to the uh, Colt 45, they had decided that they should up the caliber. Up the caliber. And they went from 36 to 45. You'd probably up so the powder charge. I would guess. But there's something, um, yeah, there's something about, I can't remember what it is, but there's something about these where they're not quite firearms. That's interesting. I, I think you can order them in the mail and it doesn't yeah. need to go through a, hmm. don't take my word for it. Um, you know what I'm talking I'm about, Spencer? You. Like, I think you can order one of these in the mail and it just shows up at your house. It doesn't need to go through an FFL. I don't know the answer. I'm not going to argue with you. Well, look it up. All right. Tell else you're doing. I believe that's the pistol carried by Wild Bill Hickok. And in his hand, I think it was definitely a firearm. And I would not have wanted to be on the receiving end of, of him. No. Did you notice in, um, did you watch the Battle of the Buster Scruggs? No. You didn't watch that? No. Oh, dude, it's on Netflix. You gotta go All watch right. Battle of the Buster I gotta Scruggs. I got to check it out. It's funny. Buster <laughs> Scruggs sits down to a card game and there's a guy that, uh, he sits down to a card game and he wants to get dealt in, but some guy has just left and they're like, no, you got to play that hand. And he's like, I don't want to play that hand. And he takes a look and it's aces and eights. Dead man's hand. And then later that day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't even dealt to him. He just sat down at the table and peeked at aces and eights. And that's all it took. Yep. That's all it Interesting. took. A uh, lot more in the writer, this gentleman here. Um, how much of this stuff is still active? So you're a writer. Are you still you're still a lawyer? Do you keep like up on lawyer business? Are you supposed to send in a check or anything every I, year? To... I send in a check in order to keep up my inactive bar status. Uh-huh. Mostly, so, so that's that, what you maintain. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a practicing lawyer. But it's like it's it's not once a lawyer, always a lawyer. Well, I don't know. It's not once a member of the bar, always a member of the bar. You got to keep up your bar membership, mostly by paying dues and not so, taking additional testing. Thank God, no. Uh, cause I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> so, but you do keep it. You do keep going. You can't fall off for 20 years and decide to send in a check and resume or can you? Uh, I don't, it, it's different state by state. Uh-huh. Every state regulates their lawyers. And honestly, I haven't kept track of it cause I hope not to ever be a practicing lawyer again. Do you do your own contracts? Stupidly. Yeah. Because, so you'll, uh, you'll, you'll look like review your own book contracts. Yeah. But I've stopped doing that more and more because, I am, I'm both uh, dumb and thinking I know enough to uh-huh. to look at them and cheap enough that I don't want to pay a lawyer. And I've gotten a little bit smarter about that over the years and started paying somebody to look at them, which yeah. has worked out well for me. Um, I was going to tell you a story, but it's just too complicated. Never mind. <laughs> Used to be an ambassador, former U.S. trade rep, and then former ambassador to the World Trade Organization. It was, uh, I was the deputy U.S. trade representative, uh, part of an agency called the U.S., uh, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And at th- that same job involved being the U.S. ambassador to the World Trade Organization in Geneva. So that was kind of a twofer. When you did that, did you have to live in Geneva? I did for six years. Oh, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. About that. Yeah. So it was, uh, we, we moved to Montana in 2003. I was born and raised in Wyoming and then lived out east for a while. Uh, went to school out there, 
came back to Montana after I wrote The Revenant. That's when I quit my law firm job is after we sold The Revenant. I decided to come out, live in the West and be a writer. Move back home. Yeah. And uh, my wife is, my wife Tracy is from Livingston, Montana. I grew up in Wyoming. We decided for a number of years between Wyoming and Montana and ended up in Missoula. Uh, when you were in Wyoming, you were still in the Yellowstone Basin, right? Well, I was born in the Bighorn Basin in Lovell, Wyoming, and uh, lived there till about third grade. But and, that still counts as the Yellowstone Basin. Uh, true, true yeah. enough. Uh, I think of it as, as Bighorn Basin. Um, but uh, well, I'm saying you, you, because you were, uh, you were in the the sort of broader drainage yeah. of where your book takes place, for sure. Yeah. Other side of the Bighorns, because uh, okay. the Powder River's on the eastern side of the Bighorns, but uh, Lovell's on the western side. But I looked up as a boy at the Bighorn Mountains, and those were kind of the the mountains that uh, uh, sparked my initial imagination about all things western mountain-related. Uh, we're going to get into Ridgeline real deep, but it uh, takes place at the, what's the closest town? The, 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 the Fort Fetterman. Yeah. Today, it's uh, the site of Fort Fetterman and the battlefield are between Sheridan and Buffalo. Was I telling you the story about someone I knew from that area who, when I mentioned the Fetterman massacre, Fetterman fight? I don't think you told me that. He's like, oh, brother, every year in school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you're a local. Get in a bus and go down to that place. (laughs) (laughs) No, I. uh, For the field trip. (laughs) Well, in Lovell, we would go over to the Cody Museum. uh, Oh, that's where your field trips were? Our field trip every year was to Cody. But of course, that museum, if if people haven't been there, is one of the, there's three museums in Cody and they're some of the, they're really kind of Smithsonian quality museums. They're unbelievable. And that was another thing that really sparked my imagination as a boy, including the uh, original painting of uh, Custer's Last Stand yeah. that they have there. By the like German this... dude or by the... No, it's by, well, it's by Paxson. He's, uh, uh, the, the artist's name is Paxson. I don't know about his background. He was well, he you know, lived in the U.S. Well, you know there's like, the guy that, like, the guy, you know the famous, like, Anheuser-Busch representation? That's a different one. That was um, German. Well, wait, no, it's not. Um... I think it may be a slightly different one. It looks, it's a, it's kind of similar layout. And you know the one called After the Fight. Um, is that the one that's in, the on o- the battlefield site? Yeah, it's in the Olive. Yeah. There's the one in the Olive in Miles City. Yep. Where Gus McCray dies, I think, and yeah, the yeah, Lonesome yeah. Dove. Yeah. Um, and people like write on it, graffiti. I've thought many times about going in there and just trying to strike a deal with them and get that damn, I want the whole wall. Yeah. I like, I'll cut the wall out, put a new wall in. It, well, but it's it's they're massacring. It's they're mutilating. The, it's the it's a painting of of them ransacking the battle site. Right, right. It's a phenomenal painting. The and one, then you look and it's like you know like people have written on there like for a good time call Jesse. <laughs> you know, the one that was in uh, the, I think you're right. It's the Paxson one that was uh, a Budweiser commercial in bars for decades uh, at the in the last quarter of the of the century look that up along Spencer. with uh, along with a buffalo i'm gonna look that up uh, a mounted buffalo head i can answer the other thing we were talking about so antique firearms and replicas of antique firearms do not fall under the national firearms act even if manufactured after 1989 so modern versions of flintlocks matchlocks and percussion fired guns do not require the involvement of an ffl so there Told you go <laughs> Bush bought like Anheuser Bush bought Custer's last fight. The Paxson one or a different one? I'm trying to find out. 
It hung, they hung it all over bars and everything. No, Cat Cassily Adams. Okay. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at this right now. You know the guy named Curly that fought in the fight? Uh, one of the scouts of Custer? Yeah. Okay, here's an... I know we're not here to talk about uh, Custer <laughs> Battlefield, but there's an interesting story about this dude, is that Curly was a crow... Curly was a crow scout. Is he in the photo with the, with the grizzly? No, that was Dole Knife. I okay. Think. That was a guy that was killed. I think, I think that guy was killed and it rattled, not Custer, but rattled one of Custer's guys. I think he got shot in the head very yep. early on. Yep, as they were riding into the camp. Yeah, and it, like his, some of his, I don't know, according to Son of the Morning Star, I think some of his brain matter splattered, splattered on an officer and the officer never quite got yeah. back to where he needed to get mentally. Curly, either, here's why there's like a lot of question about the, the so the, the Anheuser-Busch buys this painting called Custer's Last Fight. And it was based on a Crow Scout named Curly's description of the battle. I, I, I gather there's like a little uh, debate about whether Curly was there or not. Hmm. Some people say that, see, some of his uh, re-scouts and stuff, like did they knew what was going to happen the next day. And they did like a, they they did like a death out. ceremony. Yeah. They knew what was coming. And Custer got pissed off yep. that they were, uh, you know, not all in. or Yeah, they, they were, were like, no, no, no. This thought is, they were going to lose. Yeah, this isn't right. And some people are reportedly skinnied out the night before. Curly claims to have uh, survived, that he was at the battle and got away. And he, let her, he later met that guy, Gaul, yep. um, a Sioux warrior named Gaul. And Gaul said to him, um, you must have turned into a bird that day. Because that's the only way you got out of there. Like, wasn't buying it that he had escaped. But um, that what were we talking about, though? Uh, we were talking about the painting, the Paxson painting. And then, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Well, I was just you saying- remember that, what I was asking about? Uh, <laughs> we, I think I was saying that uh, we were talking about field trips as, as kids. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, that Paxson painting of the, of the Custer battle yep, just you. really fueled my boyhood imagination of that whole era. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that museum, those museums are in Cody are unbelievable. It's kind of, uh, I'm a little envious that of being able to, you know, to grow up like really amused or, you know, enthralled by mountain men and the Indian wars and to actually live there. Cause you know, if you're living in West Michigan yeah, and that's all you can think about, it's just, it all is very abstract. Well, there was <laughs> a, uh, that was a cool thing growing up in, in Wyoming. And in fact, there was an old lady that lived next door to me when I was a boy in Lovell. Her name was Mrs. Weathersby and she was 90 years old. So this was in, you know, the 1970s. And she was the lady in the neighborhood who handed out vanilla wafer cookies to the kids and told stories about, her, you know, her life. And she remembered as a, as a little girl in Lovell, Wyoming, a mountain man named John Blue riding out of the Bighorn Mountains twice a year into Lovell, Wyoming to, to do his twice a year hmm. shopping before he, you know, uh, requisit, rec, you know, stocked up and went back out to his cabin in the Bighorns. So I love that even in my lifetime, I can almost touch some of those people yeah. who, who live that. And that's an amazing thing about that history is it's, it's not that long ago. Yeah, for sure. It, it feel, it feels fresher when you're, yeah in some of these areas that haven't been 
they haven't had all the subsequent stories overlaid on exactly. the landscape too, you know. And the landscape in some of these places hasn't changed that much. And I mean, that's one of the things I love about the 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 Fetterman fight is compared to the Custer battlefield. And I love the Custer battlefield. It's it's haunting and amazing and and uh, a cool place to visit. But that valley has changed a lot more than the, the valley where the, the Fetterman fight took place. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot more people that visit it. One of the things I love about the Fetterman battlefield is a lot of days you can go out there and wander the battlefield, miles of it, and not see any other people. Oh, is that right? And yeah. so it's really, it's not hard to imagine at all. And it's 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 a cool place. I went to some of the, I don't know if I ever told you, but for a while I was going to do a book about the Nez Perce War. Me too. Yeah. yeah really? I did. I did a lot of traveling <laughs> uh, for it. I, I did too. I, I blew a whole summer on it, man. Yeah. I, That's uh, interesting. I was uh, starting to write that book when I got the really? ambassadorship. And had to abandon the book because I knew that I was not going to be able to finish it. So that was, yep. and then it, you and know then when it, when he surrendered, you know his famous "I will fight no more forever," right. which may or may not have been yeah. what he said. I was I was good. I was walking the whole damn thing. I, I was going to walk that whole thirteen hundred miles, and I in my pack with a I had a backpack and a pack raft, wow. and I started out and did quite a bit of it. And I was going to call my book "I will walk no more forever," <laughs> but um, <laughs> well that'd be the way to do but it. But I eventually just lost the thread and gave up on it. But either way, I went to a lot of those battle sites. Yeah. And they're not even like very effective. They're not even really interpreted. Mm-mm. So you got to kind of look at, you got to sort of play historian at the sites and be like, I wonder yep. if that's the mound they're talking about. Or I wonder if that's the ridge they're talking about. I'm sure someone knows, but but Little Bighorn is so well interpreted. Yeah. And actually the the Fetterman battlefield is a is a nice combination of being the way that it was, but having some interpretive guides. And I think the state of Wyoming has done a pretty good job on those guides, including, by the way, giving both a this, the a U.S. soldier perspective and also the, the native perspective in terms of how they were looking at it. And so it's, it's, it's pretty cool that they've managed to, to, to mix it in. But still, there's a lot of area for speculation about mm-hmm. where specific things might have happened. And there's just a lot that is not really known at the end of the day about the battle itself once they rode over that ridgeline. Yeah. None of the none of the whites survived. And uh, there are lots of interesting uh, accounts uh, from from native participants, but they're they're not all consistent. And so there's just a lot of room for speculation. We know how it ended. Yeah. But uh, in terms of what it was I thought it was perfect for for a novel because there there is a lot we don't know. And so you've kind of got the major mileposts there but there's, it was, there was plenty of space to kind of fill in what people were thinking, you know, what specific things were happening in over the course of the battle, and it it just made it perfect. I, I thought for fiction. Okay, let's let it hang there for a minute because I got we got to cover a couple things. But oh, another thing, are you st- do you still do the public policy for Amazon? I do. Uh, How do you do that plus all this or why? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, in part because I've got uh, kids in college. Yeah. Uh, you know about Suckers. making a living as a as a writer, which is uh, uh, up and down. Um, but uh, yeah, it I feels real good every couple years. <laughs> <laughs> the the publishing industry is is not the fastest industry in uh, in America, and yeah. so uh, things uh, things unwind slowly, even if you've got a bit of a tailwind. But so yeah, I still uh, have a day day job for Amazon Web Services. 
Michael, I, I hope you don't take offense to this, and it's a compliment, really. <laughs> oh, he's going to offend I get, you. I get worried about the question. <laughs> yeah. when Where's my interest? What happened to my interest meter? <laughs> Where's my interest? I want to turn my interest dial way up. I know, I know how this show works, though. <laughs> okay, yeah, There's yeah. usually an ambush or two someplace, yep. so here, here it comes. No, I mean it. I mean it. This is, this is a compliment. For, for your title, be writer, lawyer, policy analyst, and U.S. trade rep. You look exactly like how I would imagine someone with those titles to look. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Like he fits it all. Absolutely perfect. Okay, yes. I have no idea what that you means. You have to describe that for the audience. Well, I don't know. Like, 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 like a wool vest. Uh, like, some reading glasses. Yeah. Like Phil looks like an audio engineer. <laughs> but I think Michael looks uh, even more like a writer, lawyer, policy analyst, and U.S. trade rep. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to take that. It's but a, uh, I, thank you. It's a compliment. He, he can wear a lot of hats. You can yeah. picture him like a yep. mean old guy yelling at you to get out of his yard you can picture him I've as a writer it's, yeah. it's really it's really satisfying to I sit don't know across like the old guy part with, with those titles how old are you we're probably the same age i'm 56 oh no you got a lot of years on me yeah. Jeez, but i'm glad that you thought we were the same age yeah. how old are you 47 man i'm a decade older than you really yeah, look wow. at spry man i'm, I'm jealous of that shit man <laughs> i can see him fronting like a, like an indie folk band too can't you sure yeah or yelling at kids to get out of his yard <laughs> Uh, okay, check this out. We got a couple things. We're, we're gonna get back into. We're gonna get back into Ridgeline Hardcore. We just got a couple things we gotta go over. Um, I always hear about this every now and then, but it, this is the. Explain this, Spencer. Brudex. Yeah, it's the seventeen-year hatch, and it's coming this year. This has been covered a lot, like by every big news source there is cnn fox and so we every, better we better get on it every, that's well, we, us right we have covered it we covered it about two weeks ago okay go website. ahead lay it out the brood x hatch is coming uh, and it's all these cicadas now i i think but why is it brood x well I, th- I think there's like yeah i think there's like brood xi brood x or brood xi i like the this oh. is like Roman numeral yeah. 10. So, so I got you. Yeah. So this is like a generation, whatever it is. Yeah. This is like a generation of them mm-hmm. that they've been h- hanging out in the ground as little eggs for 17 years. Yep. And I think something that uh, other outlets have done a poor job of describing is where exactly this takes place at. Go ahead. When national news sources are covering, it's like, oh man, there's gonna be the whole country, like the whole continent. That's not really the reality though. It's basically like my understanding, pretty much every state that touches Kentucky and Tennessee, which is a lot of them, but that that region has the brood X hatch coming, um, and this is really good for fish and really good for turkeys. Millions per acre. Yeah. From New York to Georgia and west to the Mississippi, be the epicenter of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Twenty to twenty-five cicadas per square foot. Here, it's just expressing what it means for turkeys. Turkeys like to eat them, so they don't have to hunt around for food. And then raccoons like to eat them, so they get all gorged up on cicadas and don't eat turkey eggs. Mm-hmm. So if you like to hunt jakes, next year's your year. There you if go. you like to hunt longbeards, 2023. I think for most folks, though, it's just going to be really annoying, like trying to drive across a bridge that has a lot of lights on it or trying to play a softball game and they're loud in june they're incredibly loud i like that noise though man i do too yeah we had them growing up it's uh it's it's a cool sound you know a thing that you um you know earlier i was talking about how your childhood was better than mine (laughs) (laughs) one thing that uh that now like living in in the arid west you know uh when i go back home to michigan on a summer night the cacophony of Mm. sound at night 
tree frogs, but it's just like you go out into a swamp at night in like a canoe and it's, it's almost disorienting how loud it is at night there. You just don't have that in aired, in aired landscapes. Yeah. Once the, once the crickets quiet down, it's pretty quiet. Oh, it's just like, in the jungle, like in, you know, in the Amazon stuff, it's even more, it's, it's almost like you just want to yell like, shut up, shut up, shut up. I associate. Think for a minute. I associate cicadas with anxiety. When I was <laughs> a kid, our cicadas showed up in late summer. Um, so like early, Man, to mid, to early to mid August, you'd start hearing cicadas at night, and it's like, damn it, school's starting yep. against you. Mom's gonna take you shopping for school yep. clothes. Football two a days are coming. Uh, like nothing good came with cicadas. You know, uh, here at Meat Eater, we have a very modest um, vaccination incentive program. Um, hundred bucks. Yeah, I was insistent that we have a vaccination incentive program, but I wasn't able to get people rallied, and eventually somehow settled at a hundred bucks. I got my hundred. Did you get? Did you claim your hundred bucks? Yeah, I did. Good. Yeah, Phil. Oh yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Did you send your? Did you send in and get your hundred bucks? Yes. Oh, good. So people are good. 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 It's a good program. Uh, this, but not as good as this one. <laughs> Well, no, you know, maybe dollar for dollar it is. Like, so different people are doing all these different things that get people to get vaccinated. Free donuts, free milkshakes, free beer, free lamination of your vaccination card, a free ride to get vaccinated. Ohio's launching a million-dollar lotto. Oh, yeah. They're vaccinated. They're, people are lining people up. People are vaccinated. They are lining up. Really? That's all it took? The curve is just like <laughs> a straight line to Yeah, a million bucks, man. But to enter, you got to get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maine, this is great. Maine does, uh, fish. You can get a fishing license if you get vaccinated. You can get a hunting license if you get vaccinated. You can get a park pass if you get vaccinated. You can get a Maine state park day pass. Who the hell would get the day pass when they could just get the pass? <laughs> well, one's a wildlife park pass. The other one's a state park day pass. Get an LL Bean gift card. And then, uh, some other things that I don't really care about. Baseball tickets in a race car ticket. Here's where this, again, is a little bit blown out of proportion. There's about 160,000 licensed hunters in Maine, and they are paying for up to 5,000 of these. So that doesn't go very far. So is it kind of like a hurry up and get yours now kind of thing? I think so. Or hoping you don't look into the fine print, right? I, I saw, you know, uh, a listener sent this in, was talking about, you're, you're, he's saying you're going to deprive Maine of uh, you're going to deprive Maine's Fish and Game Agency of three hundred thousand dollars in license sales, but I don't really understand that because they're buying the licenses. It's I mean it says the Maine Department of Health and Human Services will purchase up to five thousand 2021 hunting passes licenses, so I don't think they're depriving the state agency of all that revenue. Right. Okay. So I think that his, the, the, the listener's gripe, but then he, he also points out, he's not, it's not a gripe because he points out this. COVID was so overwhelmingly positive for Pittman-Robertson funding because early on, everyone was getting armed up to get their neighbors, whatever they were going to do early in the pandemic. And then everybody started going out hunting and shooting all the time and buying all kinds of fishing equipment and hunting equipment and taking up sport shooting because you could just go off by yourself and didn't need to try to go to the whatever, Horde Fest, Monsters of Rock, whatever people used to go to. 
they play outside now, and so it's flooded the Pittman Robertson fund with conservation money. So it's like a you know if if they miss out on a few bucks here, it's still unbelievable amounts of firearm industry money that has gone into, um, you know, from a Pittman Robertson funding standpoint, is the good old days of wildlife funding right now, and probably will continue to run that way for a number of years here, with a lot of uh, threats against gun ownership. It's not that's not going to slow down. Um. Interesting paper came out about mountain lions. Explain this one, Spencer. You're good at explaining stuff. We covered this on our website, themediator.com. You can go there and type in, study finds mountain lions have an unexpected predator to read the whole thing. We'll, we'll touch on some of the main points. Here. It wasn't unexpected to me, though. The, the headline didn't ring true to me. I, I think it's unexpected. Hmm. Especially in like the, the abundance of it, once, once you get into it. That was unexpected. Yeah. So... This study took place in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in northwestern Wyoming, about a 900-square-mile area. And yeah, this, they, generally, like, when you see the GYE, it's about the size of Indiana, mm-hmm. where they kind of lump in, you know. This specific location was selected because the researchers, when studying the lion population, wanted there to both be wolves on the landscape and hunting allowed. Some of the studies in the past didn't have both of those factors when they were looking at mountain lion populations, but this had both those criteria. So you mean they wanted to have wolves and human mountain lion hunting? Yes, okay. in the same area. So that's how this area got selected. They noticed between the year 2000 and 2015, a 48% decrease in cougar populations. To determine this, they used an integrated population model, lion dens, abundance estimates for different animals, GPS, and VHF collar data. So you should uh, take solace that like, this was very thorough. Mm-hmm. in doing this. And they determined there were three factors that caused the cougar decline. Human hunting, wolves killing kittens, and starvation. Now, the the lead researcher, Mark Elbrock, said the big take-home on this paper is that wolves have the strongest effect on the survival and the abundance of mountain lions in the system. It's dramatic. Wolves are a power on the landscape. We saw cats respond, but we thought it was anecdotal. The strength of the wolves' effects surprised every one of us. I've heard a couple other things related to this. Mm-hmm. Um, Remy Warren one time was looking at a lion on a kill and a group of wolves came in and the lion just ran up a tree Yep, and they ate his thing. That was exactly something that they had observed. Yep. On the starvation front, it, it was a, a number of factors. One was the wolves had just knocked back elk populations in general. During this period, there was a 30% decline in elk population. So mm-hmm. that caused some of the starvation. The thing you just mentioned where they literally run them off kills – um, and then the other one, the big one, was they valued the elk population shift in where they were hanging out as a 70% shift in the location of the elk herd. So the wolves were blocking elk from mountain lions in two ways. This is a, a quote from Mark Elbrock again, the, the lead researcher. One, by moving them into places where mountain lions were uncomfortable, like the wide open, and two, by literally chasing them off their kills. So now, instead of the elk hanging out in the mountains mm-hmm. and dark timber, wolves push them out of there into wide open spaces, which was a problem for mountain lions. I read a paper. I think she's going to be on soon, one of the people that was involved in this. A Carmen, Carmen Van Bianchi, she's coming on, right? Mm-hmm. She's a, uh, she researches predators. And we had her on. We're talking about this thing where um, the presence of wolves on the landscape, how it shifts the prey base. 
and it was saying that it moves like the, the how white how white tails in mule deer it moves white tails out into more white taily stuff they head out in the open you know out in the flats more and it moves mule deer into more mule dealer stuff they tend to go up try to go up into the more craggy goaty country and whitetails go out and it kind of emptied out more of the mid-range habitat they were linking this to hunters reporting seeing like so much fewer game they were trying to so much fewer game in the presence of wolves they're talking about that they're that hunter human hunters haven't adjusted yet to the shift and they're going where they've always gone to find deer right but the deer aren't there anymore the deer have moved into new kinds of country another thing i remember reading about this though is uh I can't remember if it was speculation or not, but someone was saying with lions losing their kills all the time, they kill more stuff because they can't camp out on it and eat it for three or four days. Mm-hmm. It's like they get it, it's gone. They got to get something, it's gone. They got to get something, it's gone. And that, when people look at the decline of big game populations and the presence of wolves, that's like another factor is it's that they're not able, they don't, they're not able to kill something and eat it like they normally would. They lose it too quickly. So on, on the unexpected front here, when we talk about the predation, only about a third of kittens survived uh, until they were six months old, and then only a quarter ever made it to their first birthday. Wolf predation was the primary cause of their death. Now, the, the lead researcher again said this is the lowest survival rate ever reported for kittens anywhere. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and, then, and then he went on to say that the researchers would often find kitten parts strewn strewn across the ground after a wolf care after a wolf kill, which he interpreted as wolves treating cats as competition. So they weren't just going in there like kill the cats and eat the cats; they're just eliminating them off the landscape. Jordan Sillers, the writer of this article, being a good journalist, uh, reached out to an independent third party, our buddy Jim Heffelfinger, and so what do you think of this study that was done? Because the study was funded, I believe, by Panthera, which is yep. a, like a... The heavy metal band. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a cougar... I know, fund- <laughs> I know <Cougar>. Panthera funded. <laughs> like a cougar <laughs> conservation group. So Jordan asked Jim, he said, what do you think of this study? Like, did, did they get it right? Was this... Uh, did they have some bias? And Jim said it was interesting and it was solid from a scientific standpoint. And he really appreciated the discussion portion of the paper and how it remained reasonable without speculation. But he said it's, it's really important to um, not ignore the 30% elk population decrease. That's like the most important part of this whole thing. I don't, I don't follow. Jim was saying that, oh, I that, follow. that can't be like emphasized enough, that the wolves knocked back elk herds by 30%. Yeah. And you that's mean, like the, sort you of reduce, the important part. You reduce lion food by... Right. The starvation element. Mm-hmm. So what's next now? Th- this is maybe just like the new reality for that area, wherever wolves and, and mountain lions exist. And this is probably what it looked like pre-European contact or, or closer to it than it was before. Overall, there's probably just going to be less cats in the area, but more cats hanging out in open spaces where elks where elk currently are. Um, in Osborne Russell's journal, in the end, he has these little summations of wildlife. He, I think he says that wolverines are common. Tells all that about. Probably pretty effective predators, right? And uh, But what happened to them? Yeah. They like wolves. Eating all that, mm-hmm. eating all, all those uh, carcasses, all those 
just, you know, carcasses on the landscape. I don't know. Send that idea over to Heffelfinger, see what he thinks about that. Yeah. Uh, Spencer keeps reporting on people rescuing birds that die, and it's always so sad. <laughs> so There's always a, twi- a, a dark <laughs> twist ending, which is It's like someone rescues a bird, brings it to the rescue place, and then we're like, well, what happened to the bird? Oh, it died. <laughs> so our friend Greg Lemon from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks wanted to point out an actual raptor that was saved. <laughs> a happy ending. It's very cute. It's a like, rough, it's a rough-legged hawk got hit by a car. Had blood in both eyes. Went to this raptor facility Spencer's always talking about. And it's fine. No, way. Anything you'd like to add, Spencer, instead of your macabre no, he, raptor dying stories all the time? <laughs> he was also sharing that uh, that FWP rehabilitates raptors. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mess I'm sorry. Yeah, so they so you know So they had, did that. Yeah, they oh, did. Oh, I that. thought they did that in conjunction with the Oh, this was their own rehabilitation yep. center. Yep. But the spectrum sorry, of Greg. what they rehabilitate is wide. He said uh like all the way up to bear cubs and then in this last week they had a house sparrow come in as well. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Didn't have a BB in it, did it? House sparrow died before he had <laughs> oh. a chance to euthanize it. So yeah, you might want to talk to my boy about that. I don't know. <laughs> um Okay, good. Sorry about that, Greg. I uh, I didn't mean to take credit away from your outfit. Now, this is fascinating. Michael, you got anything to add about any of this stuff? Are you cool? I'm cool. Okay. These guys did a survey. This is the last thing we're going to talk about. Uh, British International Market Research and Data Analytics Company did a survey of <laughs> people, like, <laughs> asking people only. of, like, what wild animals they feel like they could whoop in a fight. Yeah. <laughs> Just Americans. <laughs> oh, just Americans. Yep, 39% of, of Americans feel that they'd be bested by a goose in a fight. <laughs> um, yeah. So most Americans, an overwhelming number of Americans think that they would best a rat. <laughs> Slightly fewer people could best a house cat. Slightly fewer could best a dog or goose. Um, more people felt that they could whoop a dog than an eagle. Depends if it was a large dog or a medium dog. People were like, it goes like, I'd be able to whoop a medium dog. Um, I'd be a little less likely to whoop an eagle, but I'd be a lot less likely to whoop a big dog. Yeah, that's uh, respectively 49% think that they can beat a medium-sized dog. This is like without, and this is like, you know, hand-to-hand. Uh, hand, oh, that, yeah, I forgot no, to say it's no hand to hand combat. Yeah, no weapons <laughs> hand to hand combat. A weird one is that people think they could whoop a chimpanzee, and you're not going to whoop a chimpanzee. Twenty seven, twenty seven percent of Americans think they could whoop a chimpanzee. Am I reading that right? I need to put my cheaters on. Seventeen. Seventeen. Oh, sorry. The one that's jumping out uh, at me know, is, is elephant. Enhance. <laughs> six. So that's six. Eight percent of Americans they think they could defeat an elephant in hand to hand. What are we even doing here? <laughs> Ron, Ron no, McGill. That's true, man. What you do is you grab him by that big snout and pinch that snout off. Yeah. Twelve so percent uh, of Americans know they could whoop a wolf. Nine more Americans think they could whoop a crocodile than an elephant. Hmm. Mm. Somehow, Americans think they are better off whooping a polar bear than a grizzly. 
Someone he the the person that shared this with us blames the Coca Cola commercials for cutifying polar bears. Ron McGill is a lead lead zoologist from Zoo Miami, and he does this weekly hit on a sports show that I listen to. And listeners can call in and ask him questions. And for the last five years, the most common question he gets is like, "What would win in a fight between a crocodile and a polar bear? What would win in a fight between a gorilla?" and an elephant, stuff like that. His last hit, which was a few days ago uh, on the episode, they had basically like ran him through this whole list. They're like, what did people get right? What did they get wrong? Like, what's the best fight from this list? And he had said the thing people got wrong the most would be what you said, Steve, chimpanzee. He's like, you you would not stand a chance no. against a chimpanzee. They didn't see Planet of the Apes, apparently. No. Yeah. They're like, Those they're things like, play for keeps, they're too, like, man. Ron, can you like put it in context? Like, why couldn't we beat a chimpanzee? He's like, okay, well... Uh, a chimpanzee, like with with no effort at all, can just like rip apart a coconut. He's like, that would be your skull, like no problem. They, they see, just have like unbelievable strength. You ever see those uh, chimpanzees? And this is disgusting. This made me not like chimpanzees. I used to be pro chimpanzee. <laughs> you ever see that footage? Of them ripping apart that poor little monkey and eating it. Yeah, they catch a little monkey and tear him limb from limb and eat him alive. That might have been on nature's metal. No, it was on something different I watched. Mm. I feel like they've shown some gruesome yeah. chimpanzee uh, related. They, yeah. they go you're for not... eyes and genitals immediately, like you're done. <laughs> and just think about this. Picture there's a chimpanzee. And you clock back and punch him as hard as you could possibly <laughs> punch him. There's no way you can knock out a chimpanzee. They also asked Ron, they're like, what would what would genuinely be the best fight on the list? Like what's what's like a 50-50 fight between a human and one of these animals? <laughs> Do you want to guess what it was? Well, this would be the Pigeon. whooping a medium-sized dog. 49% of the people think they're in. He said kangaroo. He no said a kangaroo kidding. would oh. genuinely be like a good teardown knockout fight. That's one of my favorite videos huh. of all time. You ever see that Australian guy that, that cold cocks that kangaroo? You ever yeah. seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the greatest video ever. Because he's got his dog. Yeah, it's got his dog. And they get no, they, they, the kangaroo like looks like it's squaring off. He squares off in a boxer stance and hits it so hard that it turns its face about 180 degrees. The man hits the kangaroo. What What is the situation that they're even like fighting? They're, in the they're pig what? hunting. And he comes in a kangaroo. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah. I got to take my glasses off. Explain this. <laughs> so if you go to YouTube or whatever, look up like man punching kangaroo. My kids watch this 5,000 times when we got onto it. All of a sudden, the guy bails out of his truck and runs up and there's a kangaroo with its arm around a dog's neck, holding the dog standing there. Oh, wow. Okay. Holding it under in a headlock. A kangaroo with a dog in a headlock. That's pretty sophisticated. The guy runs up to it, and the kangaroo drops the dog and puts up his dukes. I'm not kidding you. Puts up his dukes. The guy reflexively goes into a boxer's stance. Oh, they do like a little pirouette or whatever. <laughs> And he hauls back and hits that kangaroo so hard. Wow. Turns the, gives the kangaroo pretty much whiplash. And then the guy squares off like it's going to be another punch. And then him and his dog walk away. Huh, so he's great video. his dog. Wow. Yeah, it's the greatest video ever. Rod said that would be a genuinely good fight. And huh. it could go either way. Huh. <laughs> 
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this SolarStream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. 
You want to see me uh, watch this transition? Did you know about this transition that's in here? I may have written it, but no, no, because it's in the graphic. You know what they use? Oh yeah, right. The image yeah. for the fighting for the six percent of people that think they could whoop a grizzly is a scene from The Revenant. Yep. <laughs> and that was based off Michael Punk's book, The Revenant, and he's it, sitting right here to my left. Wow. They cite you. Michael. What do you think of that? Uh, 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 Top that. Hugh, Hugh Glass was not uh, unarmed, though. That was one thing. So he had a knife. He had a knife. He had a knife. Okay, why? Here, let's start with this question about. Uh, no, I can't decide where to start with Ridgeline. I got two. You, you decide. It's uh, it's, it's guest choice. Okay. Just give us a quick overview of what happened. Yep. Oh, can I can I read this? Yes, I, I wa- think. Well, I want I want to read the. What do you call the quote in the beginning of a book? Epigraph. Here it is. It's it's a beauty. It's a real beauty. The full story of what happened in that brief hour of bloody carnage at high noon under the wintry sky of December 21st, 1866 will never be known. It's a pretty good lead-in. It's good. Yeah. And as I said, kind of opens a door for fiction. Yeah. Uh, So tell us what happened that day. Sure. And and just like roughly, and then we're going to get into the lead up, like why it happened. But just give a brief overview. And then my next question, you can decide what you want to tackle first is um. How do you decide on historical fiction versus nonfiction? So I'll answer answer them in order. Okay. Um, Briefly, what happened at high noon on- That wintry day. Wintry day, December 21st, 1866, in the Powder River Valley of Wyoming, is 10 decoys, 10 Native American decoys, uh, a mixture of Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, decoyed a group of cavalry and infantrymen out of Fort Phil Kearney, away from the safety of the fort, and were skillful enough as decoys to lead them over a ridgeline about two and a half miles away from the fort. They were not supposed to go over. They were not supposed to go over that, and it turns out for good reason, because on the (laughs) other side of that ridgeline, uh, very much to their surprise, were is a, a force that probably numbered around 2,000 uh, combined Cheyenne, Lakota, Arapaho warriors uh, led by Red Cloud. And into that uh, trap, these uh, cavalrymen and inf- infantrymen uh, fell and were wiped out to the man. 81 men killed. It was the worst... Mostly defeat, by arrows. Mostly by arrows. It was the worst defeat in U.S. military history for a decade uh, until the the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Hmm. I don't, I don't remember if it was mentioned in the book, but I've seen it elsewhere that the decoys, as part of their uh, strategy, were mooning the U.S. soldiers. <laughs> so, Is that something you found to be true? I, I, I've read that uh-huh. before. Um I'm not sure what I think about that, whether that actually happened. I, uh, uh, I mean, who knows? They probably were doing a lot of things because they kind of led the the cavalry that was out in front along for a, quite a distance. Yeah, you got to make them um, mad. You, you got to piss make them, them off. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that was the uh, – it's a good story. I'm not sure that that piece of it actually happened or not. Uh, they certainly were successful in uh, making them angry and – getting them to chase uh, and in defiance of, of direct orders that they had not to go over this particular ridgeline. 
So whatever they did, it worked. Uh, and I, I kind of play with that in the book. But to your question of why fiction versus nonfiction, um, I've written both. The This is my second novel. The first novel was The Revenant, the, and Ridgeline is the second. And I've written two narrative nonfiction books. And for me, one of the things that made me decide to do a novel versus nonfiction is that I think this is a story where there's so much that is unknown mm -hmm. that it really, we know a lot about the context, all the things that happened before and after. But when it comes to the battle itself, there's a lot, a fair amount of mystery there. And it just made it perfect to me for a, a, uh, a fictionalized version, as opposed to something like the story of the mining disaster in Butte that I wrote about, where there were seven daily newspapers in Butte, Montana at the time of the disaster, all of which were covering this incident and uh, government reports about it, et cetera, et cetera. You just had all sorts of, of uh, historical material to work with where you didn't need as much of the, of the fictionalized piece. So that was, that was kind of one thing that played into it. I could see that being warranted in this case. I hadn't thought about it that way, um, particularly if you look at, at, at Crazy Horse's involvement. I don't know if you've ever read Larry McMurtry. There was a series where like yeah. novelists would write these bios right. of famous Americans, and Larry McMurtry, um, you know, most famous, he wrote Lonesome Dove. Yep. Uh, he wrote the Crazy Horse one. Yep. Which is very short. Very short. And it begins with Larry McMurtry basically saying, "Yeah, I don't know." <laughs> well, that's the thing. <laughs> it was uh, like basically a summation. It was like, "I'll tell you what we don't know," and that's kind of what the book yeah. go goes like. And there's not even a photograph of Crazy Horse because he never allowed himself to be photographed. So unlike a lot of the the most famous uh, Native American leaders, there are photographs. Red Cloud, for example, there are lots of photographs. Crazy or uh, uh, Sitting Bull, uh, Crazy Horse. There's no there's no photograph. He never allowed himself to be photographed. He's so mysterious. Very mysterious. They don't. They took his body. His people took his body. Yep. No one knows where they put the body. It's not even clear who stabbed him. I, I think that there's like a lot of what what happened at a time of his death. He was in Nebraska, correct? I yes, I, and he was in he was in uh, he was, he was on a military. He was like under arrest, under sort being, of some kind of house arrest. He was being returned to uh, to confinement. Yeah, he had a left scuffle, one reservation yeah. and and run off to another one in order to take care of his of his wife. He was captured, brought back. He saw that he was going to be uh, imprisoned. And uh, he resisted. And uh, the story that, uh, to me, makes, I think there's the most support for, is that he was grabbed by two uh, native policemen and then stabbed with a bayonet by a, a U.S. soldier. Oh, okay. I know there was, when I've read about it, it was that there is like some disagree, historical disagreement about who gave the death blow. But I, I but I, and yeah. I remember Ian Fraser writing that um, his disdain for the white man was so strong that even after he was stabbed and he was dying, he refused to be laid in the bed. Exactly. Uh, he wanted to lay on the ground. Yep. And died in the company of his of his father that that evening after being stabbed. And then presumably somewhere within twenty thirty miles of there, his body is hidden. You would you would think that. Uh, I mean, I guess we don't know, but that's what you would think. Hmm. So point being about that is it allows, I, I can see that there's reward and risk in taking the approach you take. Sure. Because you're taking a stab at it, right? 
And it's for, an informed sure. stab, but it's it's a, I shouldn't use the word stab because you stab death. You're taking a I don't know a guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, and I actually the book doesn't cover that part of Crazy Horse's life. It 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 pretty much stops with uh, with the the Fetterman fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't go forward the ten years. That, but yeah, uh, to but Crazy personality Horse though. You establish yeah, a personality. But for sure, and 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 I grapple with that a lot as a as a writer and i think there's even writing fiction that there's a huge responsibility to get the history right and i take that super seriously and i think it's especially important today when frankly i feel like as a as a nation we're losing our grip on on uh fact versus fiction in no, a we lot just of have different capacities yeah we, there's, there's uh, one now there's two yeah maybe in the future there'll uh, be three maybe um but i think that as i i for the books that I write, I want to not do anything that would lead a reader to a a conclusion that I think is not accurate mm-hmm. about what happened historically or about what people were like. And so in writing about Crazy Horse I and all the other characters, good and bad, I've had a, a real sense of responsibility to kind of do the research on the characters in order to kind of uh, have the best sense that I could about what they were like as people and then to write a story that is consistent with that, even recognizing that you're making up lots of stuff. I mean, in a novel, you write about what people are thinking. We don't, we don't know. You're writing about conversations that they had. We don't know. But I, I hope that I've done this book in a way that, that is true to history and to the characters. In the end, in a second here, I want to get to sort of the, the lead up to this fight. But in the end, you do... Like you have some people that you paint as inept and yep, yes, people sure. like I, I guess not villain isn't the right word, but some of them, yeah, I would call them villains. Some real questionable characters yeah. in the book, and then in the end, you have some notes. Well, that, that, that lay out. I your, take an that lay out step. your case. Yeah, that I lay t- out your case. I take an additional step at the end of of Ridgeline, and I did the same thing at the end of The Revenant, where I I have a section that is historical notes. And basically, any place where I explicitly wrote something that I I knew was not correct, I tell the reader about that, mm-hmm. and then I give uh, sources that the reader can can use to go do additional nonfiction reading. And again, I feel like when I read a book or see a movie, I always wonder did that really happen or not. And so, at the end of my book, I have a section that kind of attempts to answer that question. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, on the media.com, we ran an article last year called The Genre Revived, The New Age of Westerns. And we sort of talked about how there's been a shift like since the 1950s when Westerns had a lot of clean violence, bright colors, gunshots that never bled. And then you get into the 90s and there's like sort of uh, – it becomes very action hero-y. And then in like the 2000s and now it's like sort of dark. And Everybody's got PTSD. There's a lot of character development. Um, and there's not near as much violence. And if you are like a violent person, they're like kind of the dumb person when they're loose with gunfire. And there's just been like this huge shift over the last 70 years in the whole genre of Westerns. Has there been any kind of similar shift with like historical fiction or not? Um, that's a great question. I'm not sure that I can answer it in a very generalized way because I think people write so many different kinds of historical fiction ranging from stuff that's just barely influenced by history to to I hope I'm at the other end of the spectrum in terms of wanting to tell a very entertaining story but having it be as true to history as possible. So I, I do think it's interesting how I would say it slightly differently in terms of how I would characterize Westerns. 
I think the Western motif is something that's at the core of the American soul. And I think every decade, every generation ha uses the Western in part to uh, hold the mirror up to the, to the era that we live in, to, that they live in in their time. And so 50s Westerns uh, reflected that kind of 50s mentality uh, about, uh, about good and evil. 70s uh, Westerns- The anti-hero. The anti-hero during the Vietnam War reflected a much different view of what a, a hero even was in a Western context. Uh, something like a movie like Unforgiven to me uh, is all about the is all about violence and yeah, it happened and, to be at a time a nation in doubt a nation in doubt yeah. you know what is the what is the role of violence what does violence mean and so I think every every era kind of sees Western takes different lessons from Western history and and I think I do that too. So, so you think historical fiction like sort of follows that same thing a little bit? It's it's a reflection of the era that it comes out in. That I think that probably ends up being true. Is that look, we all see the pat, we all see everything through our prism of the, of our present experience, and I think you, if you're trying to be true to history, you try and fight against that a little bit because you want to not be uh, completely uh, uh, distorted by your your current vision, but I think that it's, it's tough to get around that. When you're developing characters, do you kind of envision them or like feel them yourself? Like what's your process to pick and choose things that may be in a historical account and meshing that with, you know, cause you get into kind of like the psychology yeah. of who everyone is. How do you feel through that? So First of all, one of the things I loved about this story is that there's such an incredibly diverse cast. And I mean, The Revenant was really about one guy mauled by a grizzly, and there's some people who he goes after, but it's really kind of a, a, a one-man show, which is an interesting survival story. This story is has a sprawling cast. And, and the West, you know, one of the things people don't uh, often realize about the West is just how incredibly diverse it was. And, uh, you know, even the diversity within the tribes is, in, is incredible. Um, among the Lakota, just in this story, you have the, the Minakauju, you have the Oglala. Uh, among the, the Cheyenne, you have the Northern and Southern Cheyenne, you have the Crow, you have the Arapaho. Uh, and so there's a huge diversity just... With language barriers, which you get into, which I hadn't... Exactly. That, that hadn't occurred to me before. I, I, I guess maybe I had just hadn't thought about it. Difficulty communicating. Sure. And, and that's just the tribes. And then you have, uh, you know, the, the role of women in the frontier is a lot more pronounced in this era than, than people realize. One of the, the most important jobs I ever had for my writing career was when I was in high school and college, I worked summers at Fort Laramie National Historic Site for the National Park Service. And I dressed up, this was the greatest boy job ever. I dressed up every day in an 1876 cavalry uniform and I... Uh, talk to tourists about the history of the West. Twice a day, we fired an 1841 mountain howitzer. Mm. Um, you know, I learned all about the guns. It was it was an incredible job. One of the things I learned in that job, first of all, the U.S. Uh, government did not do a very good era job in that era of talking about the the role of Native Americans in Western history. One thing they did do a, a fairly decent job of at that time is they talked about the role of women uh, on a fort. 
And one of the roles that they talked about in detail was laundresses, because each one of these forts had a community of women whose job was to do the soldiers' laundry. And there was an incredible uh, culture that built up around those women. And so in my book, I portray one of the characters, uh, Janie White, who's a laundress uh, at Fort Phil Kearney in 1866. So in your question was, how do you pick characters? And this one, the hard thing was, was deciding who not to pick because there were so many compelling characters to me. Um, you know, none more so than, than Crazy Horse, who, for the reasons we talked about, uh, including the fact that he's such a, there's such a, an, an, an aspect of mystery around him, made him just fascinating to me. Uh, the soldiers, there's incredible conflict between the officers, uh, between, and then between the officers and the enlisted men. The soldiers themselves uh, are largely made up of German and Irish immigrants who might have signed up for the army because they want to uh, uh, learn how to speak English, for example, if you're the Germans, and all of a sudden they end up out in this godforsaken Western frontier. Surprise, surprise, there's women at the fort in 1866, both in the form of officers' wives, uh, because the officers brought their families with them, which is surprising to a lot of people. Oh, for sure. And laundresses. I was surprised to read that. Yeah. I, I didn't mean, know that. You know, think about where they're, they're sitting in that day. The, it's the most dangerous spot on the planet, and these officers are bringing their families with them. Yeah. And all your husbands so, ride out one day. and Yeah. And all these people are interacting with each, with each other in the midst of this incredibly stressful period in the history. And to me, that just was inherently dramatic and, and interesting. Um, have you ever read, uh, I can't remember the name of it. There's a really good book about, it's a history of Afghanistan from the Soviet invasion to September 10th, 2001. No. Okay. Uh, this battle is what day? December 21? December 21, 1866. Give me what was going on up till December 20, 1866. Like a little background. So I love this, uh, part of the story as well, because there's just, this incredible perfect storm of events that come together to create this moment of conflict. And here's, here, you'll be interested in this. If you're really setting the historical stage, you know, what is, what's happening in a massive way is the floodgates are kind of opened on uh, American emigration West. And, and I, I love this confluence of events. So 18, 46, the U.S. and the United Kingdom uh, enter a a treaty that gives Oregon, that settles that Oregon will be part of the United States. So 1846, Oregon becomes uh, legally American. That was was like the last piece of the puzzle, right? Not quite. And here's the other Because the war with Mexico had already... Not quite. Okay. So 1846, U.S. gets Oregon from the U.K. 1847... Brigham Young uh, establishes a, uh, a settlement in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. 1848, the U.S. Uh, signs the treaty that ends the Mexican-American okay, War. Okay. So it's 1848 when California becomes American. And two weeks after they sign that treaty with the Mexicans, at Sutter's Mill in California, they discover gold. And then you have the 49ers with the gold rush. Gotcha. So in that three-year period, you have Oregon, California, and Salt Lake City just 
sort of saying, come west. Yeah. And people start doing it. And then they said, and get rich. And get rich. Yeah. And, you know, but what happens for a while, uh, basically between, uh, you know, the late 1840s and 1866, the era that, that, uh, that I'm writing about, is most people are going across, they're getting across the, the middle part of the country as quickly as they can. They just want to get to California or Oregon or Salt Lake City. Did they, they re, did, was that the time in which they would refer to it as the Great American Desert yes, or something? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, the first thing that the government does in 1851 is they, they, they sign a treaty with the tribes that creates a travel corridor that's basically the Oregon Trail. And they, the, the, But the 1851 treaty says to the tribes, you can have everything north of, of the Platte River. North of the Oregon Trail. With, uh, with a treaty like that, like what are they specifying? They're, they're specifying that people can pass through unmolested, or are they actually saying like, "Here's a little buffer we don't want anybody to go into." Mostly pass through unmol- unmolested. Okay. They say, "Here's the road that, that you can that, that you will allow settlers to use." They allowed them to set up forts along the road okay. to defend the trail, but they said to the tribes, "Everything north of the North Platte is yours." And they tried to kind of divide it up, meaning like we'll never touch it. Yes, no interest. Yes, yeah. And then what happens is the gold, the placer gold, the easy gold, runs out in California by the late, by the early 1850s. And so all those guys who went out to California to get rich on gold start coming back to the middle of the continent, and there start to be gold strikes in places like uh, like Nevada and Colorado. And then in 1862 in Montana. Mm. And what happens when they strike gold in Montana is all these gold miners start peeling off of the Oregon Trail and going north up to Montana to get to Bannock City and Virginia City and the other gold strikes. And when they do that, when those, when those miners uh, start peeling off the Oregon Trail, they're violating the, tre- the 1851 treaty, which has given all of that to... The tribes. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this conflict. And by 1866, and this is the this is what sometimes is called the Bozeman Trail, and I think was more commonly then called the Montana Road, that the Bozeman Trail goes right through the middle of the Powder River Valley. And what the US government does, and this is what the US government does every single time when there's conflict between a treaty and the desire to go get gold is they try and, in their most benign form, they try and renegotiate the treaty with the tribes and say, oh, now we want to go up there, sign a new treaty. And so in the summer of 1866, i.e. six months before the battle that this book is about, at Fort Laramie, they bring the tribes together, some tribes together, because this is a bone of contention as to which tribes actually signed the treaty. But in the summer of 1866, the U.S. government signs a new treaty that basically says they can travel through the Powder River Valley and build three forts between Fort Laramie and the gold fields in Montana. What do they give? In, what do they give as compensation? Uh, for that treaty, I I I can't remember if they because what they did in 1851 is they said we'll give you fifty thousand dollars worth of annuities every year, and they would come out with wagons full of 
arrowheads and blankets and uh, metal pots. And they did some kinds like roll like cattle and stuff into that, right? Yeah, although I don't think the cattle was as common for okay. the, for those annuities. I don't know if if there was an annuity agreement in. 1866 or not. But so, but when they do an annuity like that, they would say basically in perpetuity, yeah. we'll truck out and drop off at some location yep. X goods. And the tribes would come in annually and, and collect their annuities. That yeah. was- uh, And that was meant to be like- Forever. Huh. Uh, but what they do in 1866 is they, they find, and, and this is part of the misconception of the US government- uh, for a long time, certainly then, but even even now, in terms of wanting to think of of the tribes as being monolithic entities, mm-hmm. they wanted they wanted the Lakota to be France, because they were used to having ne- negotiations between you know the United States and France, and you would get each co- country's diplomats together and you'd sign a treaty, and the Lakota uh, the tribes. The Lakota representatives that they signed treaties with and, and the other representatives that they signed the treaty with in 1866 oftentimes didn't even live in the part of the country that was being given away in the treaty. So those tribes that would sign the treaty, they, they didn't, uh, uh, it was not an issue for them to sign a treaty saying you can have the Powder River Valley because that's not where those tribes lived. Yeah. But if you're Red Cloud who lives in the Powder River Valley who didn't sign that treaty, then you can imagine that that didn't go over well. But here's the thing that confuses me a little bit, though. The Powder River Valley, where where the fight takes yep. place, wasn't that supposedly that wasn't even Lakota ground? Hadn't that been? Hadn't they agreed that that was the Crow? Not. It was more ambiguous than that. Okay. Um, and so, and 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 there certainly was fighting between the. Uh, among many of the tribes, including between the Lakota and the Crow, uh, very famously, but also between the Lakota and the Shoshone, for example, who lived predominantly on the other side of the of the Bighorn Mountains. Like historic, like fighting that predates it. Yeah, yeah, uh, Skirm- skirmishing or whatever that predates that. And and the 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 notion, I mean, the notion that uh, tribes had defined. Uh, very specifically defined territories is very much an, uh, something that I think the U.S. government wanted to believe because that made it more convenient to negotiate these treaties. But that's not the way that the tribes thought about it. Not to say that they didn't have hunting territories that they would defend, lands that they would defend from other tribes, the Lakota versus the Crow or the Lakota versus the Shoshone. But it was not something that was, that was you know, agreed to in the sense that that the US government wanted to think about mm. it. And so when they try and when the US government tries to impose this notion of a treaty on the tribes with specifically defined borders and uh you know the notion that one tribe can can sign that on behalf of of another tribe just didn't it didn't it saying didn't stuff well. like like this creek that river right. that exactly. mountain ridge exactly. Yeah. And so and in fact uh what happens in the summer of 1866 is Red Cloud is at Fort Laramie as part of these negotiations. And in the middle of those negotiations, Colonel Carrington, who I write about in the book, uh, marches into Fort Laramie from Nebraska with 300 troops. And the Lakota find out that his mission is to go build forts in the Powder River Valley. This is before the, a treaty has even been signed, even a treaty that they don't like. Mm-hmm. And so Red Cloud says... 
you know, screw this, I'm out of here. Like I thought we were here to negotiate, yeah. but it's you've already decided. Yeah, I got you. Um, and Red Cloud leaves, and that was, because that was an area that he had spent his life in. Yes. Yeah. And so he sees that you know the the it was, the game was fixed, and it's not a real negotiation. And he leaves. After he leaves, other tribes sign a treaty saying you can go occupy the Powder River Valley, tribes that don't live there. Yeah. And so that's the setup. When you ask what's the setup for, uh, for December 21st, 1866, that's the setup, is a couple of decades in which the floodgates have just been uh, opened wide in terms of, of Eastern Americans going West. Uh, a history of treaties that have been established and then violated and a very recent treaty that is agreed to without the participation of the tribes that live in the land that is subject to the treaty. And then this Carrington guy heads north with none other than Jim Bridger. Jim Bridger. And I could not <laughs> believe this when I started doing research on this because I love Jim Bridger. And you know, He was in your first book. And he's a 19-year-old uh, naive greenhorn in The Revenant. And by the time of this book, 1866, he's a 66-year-old legend of the West and truly a legend of the West. I mean, he's, he is like in his own, in his, his own, own day. Yeah. The, the soldiers are in awe of him because he's, he's famous as a, uh, incredible, uh, Western scout. And so, yeah, the army hire, uh, Jim Bridger to scout for them in the Powder River Valley in this campaign in 1866. And not only Jim Bridger, but for mountain men aficionados out there, they also hire James Beckworth, who is a incredibly famous mixed race scout, uh, born a slave with a white father and a, a black slave mother, freed by his uh, white uh, father uh, as a boy. And both Bridger and Beckworth in go out and are part of the original 1823 Rocky Mountain Fur Company expedition that goes out that I write about in The Revenant. And so these two guys who are both in their 60s at this point are and legends in their own time are scouting for the U.S. Army. One of the things, talk about uh, fiction and why I wrote this as a novel, what happens in real life is Colonel Carrington, the commanding officer of the of the this army group dispatches Bridger and Beckworth to go figure out where the Indians are. And so there's literally a moment that takes place in the fall of 1866 where Jim frickin' Bridger and James frickin' Beckworth are riding across the prairie together for, for two months uh, looking for the tribes and, it, and imagining the conversations that those oh, two yeah. guys were having, which I try and do in the book. Remember that movie, Drugstore Cowboys? Yeah. They're always like, the things we've seen, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, and, it, and imagine what they've seen. I mean, they came, they came west in 1823 with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and are part of literally one of the very first commercial fur operations in the 1820s. And they ride through, uh, they ride out the whole fur trade era until the, you know, until 1840. Bridger then reinvents himself and sets up a fort uh, that ends up being right on, uh, on the Mormon trail to, to Salt Lake City and makes a ton of money selling provisions to immigrants uh, on, the, on the Oregon Trail. 
And then by the 1860s, he's scouting for the U.S. He's making his, his living as a, as a scout for the U.S. Army. But the history that he's seen is phenomenal to think and, about. And you paint him as being, um, and I, I, like, and I buy it. Like you paint him as as becoming conflicted about the changes in the West. Well, you know? I thought about that a lot, and I I think well, we talked about a little bit about this when I was here before. I think for some of those guys like Bridger and Beckworth, they must have been conflicted because their world was changing so much. And the world that drew them to the West, uh, you know, the truly open frontier was changing. And not only was it changing, but they were helping to facilitate that. And I think there must have been a lot of, uh, I think they must have questioned themselves about whether that was exactly the world that they wanted the West to be. Did they really want civilization? Yeah, and if you look at it from a, a abundance of game. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they had saw like the, yeah. they were seeing, they were witnessing, like here they are all these decades, they've been living off these like incomprehensible herds of buffalo. Yeah. That's vanishing. Like it- Already. Along the trail, yep. especially. Yeah. Harder, harder to find. Decimation of the beaver. And then just people, man. Yeah. And so I think, and I, I also just think as you get older, you're more uh, reflective about uh, about things generally and, and your life and your role and it's not that I think that Bridger suddenly had a massive uh, conversion and and you know uh, turned away from his earlier life. No, I don't, I don't think job. that's what, I don't yeah. think that's what happened. But I think there must have been a lot. There must have been moments where he he asked himself questions, and they and I play with that in the book. So what, what do you think the draw was for Bridger to participate in this? Like strictly the money or something else? Um, I think a lot of it was probably making. A living and look, he was a his living as he was a scout, and uh, I think he must have been proud that they would need to rely on him and want to rely on him as as much as they did. I I I think he might have had some uh, some antipathy towards the Lakota in part because his the tribes that he had uh, married into. And spent the most time with were the were the Shoshone, who were historical enemies of the of the Lakota and the Cheyenne. So I think who'd shot him in the back with an arrow? That was the Blackfeet, right? That was the Blackfeet, I yeah. believe. Yeah, uh, back in the twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, look, I'm sure it was. I'm sure there were lots of things going on, and I think people sometimes try and oversimplify how people make decisions. And I try not to do that because I think if you think, if we think about our own lives and how we make big decisions, there's usually lots of different things at play. And I don't think there was just one thing at play for, for Bridger. So Bridger helps him identify, or maybe they've already identified a, a fort site. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not entirely clear how they decide exactly like where the forts there. are going to be. Yeah. But um, we'll talk about that spot. Well, one thing I'll say about Bridger and one decision he was involved in is Bridger told the army not to go up to Powder River Valley. Oh, because okay. he, I remember this. Uh, Bridger told them to go up the other side of the Bighorns because that's where the Shoshone were, who were more friendly to the U.S. government. And he said, if you go up the, Shosh- the Shoshone side of the Bighorns, uh, you won't have to fight, but it was longer. And there was such, it took like, I don't know, 10 or 20 days longer if you went on the Eastern side of the Bighorns. Okay. And so they were so eager to get to the gold fields that they just wouldn't accept a shorter, a longer route. Home it now. 
Wouldn't that be the western side of the Bighorns? I'm sorry. Okay, the, yeah. the, the longer route was the the Shoshone were on the western side. Western of the, side, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're on the western side of the Bighorns, and it was the Powder River Valleys on the on the eastern side of the Bighorns. And Bridger told him, "Go up the western side where the Shoshone are. You won't have to fight." And the army said, "We don't want to take the extra time." And so they foisted a treaty on tribes and went up the Powder River side, and that's what led immediately to the conflict. So that was, that's the one thing I know about where Bridger specifically advised them. I don't know about the individual yeah. fort sites once I got on the, on the Powder River side. Um, and they pick a spot. They pick a spot. Uh, you guys have probably been in mm -hmm. this part of the country. It's, it's, it's beautiful. These, the, these creeks that run off the, the Bighorn uh, into the Powder River Valley are, are just they're timbered and they're green and there's these crystal clear uh, cricks that run off the the bighorn, uh, and and you can see why they think that this is a good spot and this the spot where Fort Phil Kearney is is beautiful, great water, grass for their stock, for, especially because they were driving a herd of a thousand cattle. Uh, they weren't feeding their their horses on on uh, the, the army didn't feed the horses on on grass, but they needed grass for, for their cattle. There's timber to build the fort with. It's a great fort site. Only problem is it's dead center in the middle of Lakota uh, uh, home land and, and hunting territory. And when you, you mentioned that they're packing with, you got to kind of get a picture of what this must look like coming across the landscape. Yeah. Driving a thousand cattle. They have sawmills. Yep. I mean, they have... They are coming to stay. Like they're like everything you would need to establish a city. Yes. So this is not uh, like a, a '50s movie where there's a hundred cavalrymen out on a on a patrol. This is uh, this is a massive caravan, uh, a massive wagon train that includes hundreds of soldiers, both cavalry and infantry. It includes. Uh, hundreds of Conestoga wagons bringing supplies, including, as you point out, a sawmill that they construct on the site in order to, to mill the logs, to, to, to build the buildings that they're putting up. It includes a herd of a thousand cattle, which they intend, and this doesn't work out very well for them, they're, they're intending to use as their winter food supply. And, and this is one of the things that must have been most striking to the, to the Lakota, is they see that there are women and children as part of this, as part of this group, which meant that they weren't on a patrol. It meant that they were coming to establish a town or a city. Yeah, and that's exactly what they did. They built this massive fort, and Fort Phil Kearney is huge. You can visit the site today. There's not the the, the, the it was burned by the by the tribes after the at, after the end of the this war, but the the area that they enclosed in a stockade uh, enclosed 13 acres, so it's huge. And then inside of this walled area, they they built buildings, but it it didn't look like the the kind of small trading post fort that mm -hmm. we kind of sometimes have in our mind's eye. This is a massive uh, fortification. Can you explain what the army wood train is that plays a role in this? Sure. So. Uh, the daily life at Fort Phil Kearney in this era basically involved uh, the mission of the fort of, of, these, of this army in, in, the, in the early days is to build the fort. They're not even supposed to really be out looking to, to fight the tribes. They're supposed to be building the fort 
and establishing a base. And then they're presumably going to go out in the spring and fight. And so every day what they do is they send out what they call the wood train, which was a, a caravan of, of wagons. And they, would, they were about three miles away from the good timber. And they wanted the fort not to be right up against the timber because they wanted it to be more open for defensive purposes. Yeah, they got cannons. They and got stuff, cannons. Man. And they yeah. want to be able to use, use the cannons, which they did. So every day a wood train that was manned by soldiers would, would go out three miles to where the timber was and they would cut trees down. And then they would haul those trees back to the fort and they would mill those into either the logs they used to actually, uh, they would stand them up straight side by side to build the perimeter of the fort. But then they had the sawmill that they could uh, mill boards with to build all the buildings. So basically what they're doing all through the fall is they're sending out wood crews and a wood train to cut wood. And what the, what the Lakota do is they are constantly harassing these wood trains. And so they're, over the course of the fall, there's this kind of crescendo of violence as, they, as the Lakota and the Cheyenne increasingly attack the wood trains uh, in ever more uh, kind of sophisticated types of attacks. And all of that then leads up to this big battle at the end, which is uh, fundamentally different from anything that the army had, had ever seen before, which is one of the reasons why I think it, it was so effective. Explain the, the the kind of raids that we're talking about when we say like attacking the wood train. So the, uh, a, wood, a typical wood crew would be maybe uh, 20 soldiers to cut wood and 20 soldiers whose job was to stand guard because they every time they went out virtually, there was an attack or certainly the threat of attack. So uh, what an attack would be over the course of the fall were these very small uh, war parties of, you know, 10, 12 warriors that would go out and do these guerrilla style running uh, attacks against the wood crews. And a lot of soldiers died over the course of the fall. I mean, dozens oh, of soldiers died. Oh, they whittled away at They them, did. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, you know, but none of the of those skirmishes were, were big, uh, you know, one or two or five soldiers would die. It, it was not a big battle. It was, it was viewed as more of a, by the, by the army as more of a, of a harassment. They weren't in the mindset that the, that the tribes would, uh, come together and, and attack them in a, in a big way. And frankly, not only were, were they not in that mindset, but they, they disregarded in ways that, that proved, uh, quite foolish the ability of the of the tribes to to kind of come together and have a kind of massive uh, strategy or big trap that would challenge them if they had if they went out in force. In your book, you get into this. Um, it's like a little side story or a interstory of some sort. I can't find the right word for it. But the cattlemen that show up, yeah. Is this, that was is that a thing to happen? It happened, and this was complete catnip for me because of <laughs> of what you of what you said, Larry McMurtry. Yeah. So my favorite uh, novel of all time is is Lonesome Dub by by Larry McMurtry, which people have probably read and people, they know is about the first ever cattle drive from Texas to Montana. And I'm doing the research for can we, can we hold there for, yeah. just to explain this real yeah, quick? Yeah. Um, now, like in modern times, you, you can bring a cow, like a cow goes from birth to sale quicker than it used to. Yeah. Like even today, <laughs> if you go down to Argentina, wherever, like, you know, they don't grain cattle down there. 
um, they don't hit slaughter weight for a couple of years. It's a longer thing. You could, and these cattle, when you hear about these cattle drives, you could get a bunch of calves, right? Or even start with pregnant yep. cows. What you're doing is you're going up to the north where there's grass. Yep. You're, you're taking them up, like you're taking a single generation up to get fattened for free on free grass yep. and then bring them somewhere to sell them. So it's not like, it's not like you're bringing them up there to leave them there. You're talking about the Montana well, drive. Or you're talking no, about how, about, how, you know, when well, people would do these, when you hear right, these right. like cattle drives yeah. going up, a lot of times it'd be like, you're just, they're, they're just feeding them. Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not like you sold them to some guy up there. Well, this, uh, th- so the guy that we're talking about here in true life. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, okay. In is, this book. Is a guy named Nelson Story. And uh, when I was doing the research for the, about the, you know, this Powder River uh, war in 1866, not only does Jim Bridger show up there and James Beckworth in the middle of this, and as a writer, I'm like, yay. But also in the middle of this war that's going on, this Texas cattle herd and it's Texas longhorns that they're driving, literally uh, with 20 uh, uh, cowboys driving it, shows up at Fort Phil Kearney in the fall of 1866, in the middle of this war. And the guy that is leading them is a guy named Nelson Story, who had uh, been a gold miner in Bannock, Montana, and made like a pretty decent chunk. He makes like $30,000. Oh yeah, I forgot about this detail, this yeah. guy, yeah, yeah. And so he, but he doesn't like mining, and he sees that what the miners don't have is food. And so what he figure, figures out is he's going to take his $30,000 from uh, panning gold in Bannock, and he, draw, he, he rides his horse to Texas, and he gathers up a herd of cattle and hires 20 cowboys, and they literally drive this cattle herd from Texas to Virginia City, Montana, successfully, with the goal yeah. of establishing- To do not what I herd. was saying and yeah. to go and sell to actually, cattle. Yeah, I mean, he, he sells half of them. But he keeps he establishes the first cattle ranch in Paradise Valley and hmm. may have named it, um, and so he establishes a cattle ranch in Paradise Valley uh, near what's now Livingston, and becomes the first Montana millionaire selling cattle to gold miners. And half the shit in Bozeman is named after him. Exactly. Yeah, he's buried here too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, my kid. When I I had to escort his field his uh, uh, field okay. trip one day, we went to look at we went to see where they uh, the last guy they hung down at the courthouse. The then we went over to see uh, yeah. at the gallows, which yeah. is still there, and then went over to see uh, Story's tombstone. So, so the the story of Story for me uh, was too enticing not to incorporate into the book because it's just it is. And Larry McMurtry has said that he based in part the story of Lonesome Dove on his research on Nelson Story. You mentioned in the book that um, these guys show up and they're better armed. Than the soldiers? Much better armed. The army was incredibly stupid about the weapons that they gave their soldiers for a long time. And in 1866, these poor bastards who get sent out to fight on the Western frontier are carrying Civil War, uh, Springfield, muzzle-loading, obviously single-shot rifles. And that's at a time when there were really great repeating rifles that were available and the civilians were smart enough to have them. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, there's two civilians that ride out on the day of the battle with, with, uh, with Carrington and his men. They're both armed uh, with Henry repeating rifles, which held 16 bullets. 
Like a two, like a lever action. A lever action, right, yeah. uh, repeating rifle, highly accurate, 16 rounds. They, the joke at the time was you load on Sunday and shoot all week. Yeah. Um, they have at the... Those guys had been laying waste with those things, man. They did When you, when you read the details of that yeah. battle, like the way it was laid out, you yep. can imagine just being able to shoot. And they were, and they were good with them and they were Civil War veterans. So they were, you know, they were... And and yeah, if if the army had had those, it would have been a, a different outcome. But can we, can we go back to story one quick second? Yeah. Um, how did he like? I know he did, but how did he think that he would live? Well, it's crazy. And uh, uh, he does arm his twenty guys with uh, repeating rifles, and so they're well armed. But when you think about, were they just running a rolling gun battle through the valley? They, not a rolling battle, but they did they did fight several battles with. The tribes on the way up. Really? I mean, these guys were were flat out badass, and the fact that they thought <laughs> that they incredible. could do it is 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 unbelievable. And they, but they succeed. That must have been just and, a hard night's sleep. Well, and they on that trip, <laughs> they did have their cattle run off at one point. Uh, they lost like half their herd, and they go out with a party, and they recapture. They fight the the tribe that took them, and they recapture the battle and herd the the strays back into the herd and keep going. I mean. It's an amazing story. The, huh. the story story is an amazing story. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. 
Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months... I've become friends with, and my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them, and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. So what's different on December 21 when the wood train sets out? So what is different is uh, the what I think is really happening is the Lakota and Crazy Horse and the Red Cloud and their Cheyenne and Arapaho allies have just spent the fall learning about their enemy and taking into consideration everything that they learn. The U.S. Army has been doing exactly the opposite. They've they first of all. Uh, underestimate their enemy in terms of that enemy's ability to uh, conduct a massive operation. I think there's uh, a good amount of prejudice that goes into that in terms of how they thought that the tribes were even capable of, of fighting. Um, they, they're very focused just on building the fort and not thinking about, about fighting. And what Red Cloud does is he, he does something that is unprecedented for that time, and it totally takes the army by surprise. The first thing he does is he creates this coalition of tribes, and and the tribes had not typically fought together in this way before, but Red Cloud does this great diplomacy with the Cheyenne, with the Arapaho. There's evidence that he even tried to reach out to the Crow to be part of that coalition, which shows you how much he was recalculating the position of the of the tribes on the on the plains at that time, the crow didn't want to be a part of it, but he may have, have actually reached out to them. So he creates this massive coalition. He also decides that they're going to do something that is legions beyond anything they've ever done before. the The biggest war party that they had ever put together over the course of the fall is probably one or two hundred uh, warriors, and the war party that he brings together. Uh, and mo- and usually, as we talked about before, it was a dozen kind of guerrilla style hits. What he does on December 21st 
1866 is he pulls together 2,000 warriors, this coalition of Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho. And he finds this valley three miles away from the fort where if they can get the army there, they won't have any of the advantage that they have at the fort, either of the fortification or the cannons or anything else. And he places and, and these- like a level of secrecy. In complete secrecy. Because no one in the forest can see nope, what- Nobody, yeah. they, and they can't see this. You can't, if once you go over Lodge Trail Ridge, which is the ridgeline in the book, you can't see on the other side. You can't see the, from, the, from the fort the other side. And then the trick, and this is a huge trick, is somehow they've got to get the army to come out of the fort in numbers and get them to go three miles over the ridgeline into the trap so that it can be sprung. And that's the job of Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse job. I, I want to put in another challenge yeah. you spent, and maybe you'll get to it, but you spent a lot of time talking about it, is how far they lured these people in with no one noticing that there's 2,000 people hiding under clumps of sagebrush. And not just people, horses. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like the, is, the subterfuge. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, and when you walk the yeah, battlefield- Yeah, 2,000 people with horses. With horses. And, and when you walk the battlefield, and, and we talked about this when I was here before too, the, the notion that, you know, people always talk about featureless planes and that's the stupidest description ever because planes are anything but featureless. They're, there's all sorts of coolies and draws and crick beds and you name it. And when you walk this battlefield, there's all of that. Mm -hmm. but, there's, but it's still pretty open and it's pretty open certainly if you're trying to hide 2,000 warriors and their horses. And so to me, that's one of the biggest... Uh, mysteries of the battle and one of the most amazing things that they did is they they hid themselves and their horses such that all of these uh these cavalrymen and infantrymen get up on this ridge line and look down and don't see anything and ride it, in it made me want to it makes me want to go back there just to look there and be go. like i don't understand how there's that many, like yeah. i'd, I'd want to go look to get a better grip on how you could hide that many people i've 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 walked it a lot of it and uh and you can you you can imagine it but you also see the skill that it took uh, just to keep the horses quiet and to, and to hold their positions. They had to wait because uh, they, were, they were basically on, if, it's a, if, it's a, if you think of, it, of the battlefield as a, as a clock, they're basically, and, and if you imagine the, the army riding in at 12 o'clock, they basically have uh, warriors deployed between... 10 o'clock and two o'clock mm -hmm. all around the clock. Yeah, yeah. And so between the, the army has to ride in between 10 o'clock and two o'clock. And get to the center of the clock. And get to the center of the clock and then they close it up. But they have to suck them into the center of that, of that clock to do it. And, and, to do, and that's, a, that's, that's not 200 yards. That's like a mile. And so it's a, it's a massive battlefield. And so, and, but that's what they successfully do is they suck them into the center of that, of that clock and then they quickly close up between 10 o'clock and two o'clock, and then it's a massacre. Is it undisputed, because your book gets into it, is it undisputed that they were for, they were forbidden to, like, sure, go chase them, don't go over the ridge? So I think it's pretty close to undisputed. Okay. And I say that with a little bit of hesitation because Colonel Carrington, who is in the fort during the battle and he's the, he's thereby the, he's survives, the head cheese. He's the head cheese. He's the guy who sends these guys out, but he doesn't, he doesn't go fight and therefore he doesn't go die. Uh, he, after this, 
after this massacre happens, it's hugely politically controversial in the U.S. because it's the worst to that time, as I said, the worst defeat in U.S. military history until Custer. And so there's a huge like investigation of what happened. And Carrington basically spends the rest of his career defending himself, that it wasn't his fault. Mm-hmm. And there does seem to be pretty good evidence that he gave the very explicit order, don't go over Lodge Trail Ridge. And if they hadn't gone over Lodge Trail Ridge, they wouldn't have died because the trap's on the other side of Lodge Trail Ridge. Um, but, uh, but I do say it with a little bit of hesitation because he, he does a lot of other things that I think very deliberately distort the, the record, mm-hmm. including blaming Fetterman overwhelmingly as the, the villain of the, of the battle. I think some of the scholarship that has been done more recently rightly puts the, the blame on another one of the officers, a guy named Grummond, who is much more the villain in, in my book. You pay him. You pay him out to be a real a hole. I think he was an a hole, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's uh, and there's good evidence of that. Um, and let me compare those two guys in terms of the historical evidence, by the way. So Fetterman, and they're both uh, Civil War veterans, and by all accounts, all of the officers, with the exception of Carrington, who was a logistics guy in the in the war, all of the other officers at the fort were were had a lot of combat experience in the Civil War and were decorated. But Fetterman had a reputation for not only bravery, but also for being kind of a, a company man and following orders. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the reputation of Grummond, by contrast, he was court-martialed during the Civil War for, uh, for beating one of his non-commissioned officers. He was court-martialed for shooting an unarmed civilian and he was court-martialed for disobeying orders and charging ahead when he wasn't supposed to. Mm. So when you weigh their <laughs> when you weigh their records and you think who is more likely to have been the one who disobeyed orders and went over the ridge line, to me it comes down on Grummond. And in the aftermath, Carrington's wife sort of like huh, goes after, on. How are we in the aftermath? Well, I'm not, but I'm huh. saying Carrington's wife sort of like goes on tour blaming. Fetterman, right? And like she what, does. How does that influence things? Well, a lot because and uh, and it's crazy because uh, uh, just there, it's a little bit incestuous here because uh, at at the time that the the book takes takes place, both Carrington and Grumman's wives are part of the fort, and I in fact I write a lot about Frances Grumman because I think she's a very fascinating character. But you're right, Carrington's wife, his first wife, Margaret Carrington joins him in making this defense of her husband. And she writes an autobiography in which she basically says, she gives Carrington's version of the battle, including don't go over Lodge Trail Ridge. And she blames Fetterman like Carrington. But, uh, but uh, uh, Carrington's first wife, Margaret, dies. And, and he ends up marrying Grumman's wife. And then Grumman's- Whose husband dies in the fight. Whose husband died in the fight. And, uh, and Grumman's wife then writes her own autobiography, and she also repeats, in some cases almost word for word, uh, the, the account of the battle that her husband propagated that he was not at fault. So he put two people up to it. He put two wives up to it, yeah, he, to do his dirty work. <laughs> the, the 10 warriors that sort of act as the decoys. You have like uh, two Cheyenne, two yep. Arapahoe, um, two from Ogallala. Is there any significance to that? There was, and I think we don't know exactly who the 
who the decoys were. There's, I think there's pretty good evidence that Crazy Horse is one of them, but they, my understanding is that the, the tribes uh, picked honorary decoys that were representative of, of, their, of their people. And so I think it's, it's probably pretty accurate that there was a, the type of mixture that I, that I described there. And that comes a lot from a lot of the oral uh, accounts of the battle from, from, different, uh, from different tribes. When, um, what's the, the, you know, for a long time, people called the Fetterman Massacre. Yeah. Also the Fetterman Fight, but it had the, the Battle of the 100 in hand, right? Yeah. Was that a, was that a Sioux name? That was what the Lakota call it. Because they had, someone had a prop, someone said like, if you want to catch a bunch of them. A half man. So there is a, there's a transgender uh, Lakota and we don't know his name. I, in, in my book, uh, I give, I give the name Moon uh, for this person. But when I, when I first read about this, I wondered about it, but there is an account of this from George Bird Grinnell, who's a guy that I wrote a book about who was a conservationist and also an, uh, a Native American ethnologist. And in 1915, he wrote a book called The Fighting Cheyenne. And as part of his research in 1915, he interviews uh, a Cheyenne warrior named White Elk who had been at the, at the Fetterman fight, who fought at the Fetterman fight hmm. and walks the battlefield with him. And this Cheyenne warrior, White Elk, tells the story of a, uh, of a transgender Lakota, their, their word for it was Winkte, a transgender Dakota, and the, and the, the Winkte were revered in Lakota culture, which I think is very interesting as having the wisdom of both men and women. They were revered in the tribe, and they were, they were often turned to for advice, whether it was uh, in family matters or in, in battle. And so this account that I use as the basis for what I write about in the novel is from this 1915 account that George Bird Grinnell wrote down from the story he heard from a Cheyenne warrior, a white elk, which I think is pretty good, pretty good evidence. Um, and it was, it wasn't quite a hundred, it was eight, what was the number? Well, to, to, you, to go to your question, so the, the prophecy, what happens is Red Cloud and the, and the other leaders kind of go to the battlefield the day before to survey it and decide where they're going to, they're going to hide everybody. And in deciding whether or not to use that site as the battlefield, they call upon this, this Winkte prophet to, to tell him what's going to happen. And he prophesizes that uh, he, he, he rides, the, the prophet rides all over the battlefield and comes back three separate times. And on his third time coming back, he, he is, uh, acting out that his arms are full and that his hands are full. And he tells Red Cloud and the other chiefs that he has a hundred in his hands, a hundred dead soldiers in his hands. And that's his prophecy for what will happen if they have the battle at this place. And so that's the moment when Red Cloud decides this is the place and, and time and place. And so the Lakota refer to the battle as the battle of the hundred in the hands. Not quite a hundred die, but 81 die, which is, I don't know what the, how we keep track on, on prophecies, but that one's not too far off. <laughs> Once they spring the trap, so the, the 10 decoys, we kind of established yeah. these 10 decoys. These 10 decoys, 
rile up, skirmish with, somehow infuriate, um, and, and get these 84 soldiers yep. to just be like, now's our chance. We're finally going to get these suckers. Yep. They ride into the center of the clock. Once they spring the trap, how long does it take them to kill them all? 30 minutes. Just unbelievable, man. And there are unbelievable- With arrows. Yeah. And there are unbelievable accounts of- 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And so what starts happening back at the fort, um, and there's a good, there's good you know, uh, written history of this, is uh, all of a sudden they start hearing gunshots. Um, and then they start hearing a shitload of gunshots. <laughs> and then they s- stop hearing any gunshots. And, and, and they, they know something. And they can't see any of this because they've gone over the ridgeline. And they send out uh, what's supposed to be a relief force, although it gets there way too late. And, and they actually, the, the relief force, once they get up on the ridgeline and look down there, they can see what's going on. The relief force is smart enough not to ride down there. But, uh, but 30 minutes is about the amount of time that the battle takes. And what's the amount of friendly fire from both sides that's sort of happening? Quite a bit, uh, including. Uh, well, I don't. I don't know as much on the on the on the U.S. Army side how much friendly fire was because they probably were firing more outward. But there was a lot of friendly fire uh, between the tribes because it, they're they're in a circle and they're firing toward the center. But there is is quite a bit of of anecdotal evidence about about uh, Native American warriors being killed by arrows. Uh, because there were so many arrows, and of course it's it's chaotic in the center. Oh, the sky must have um, just been a buzz with arrows. I mean, you see these movies now where they show these waves of of arrows, you know, flying in, and it that's it it, it must have have been unbelievable. Um, you have it that there's some suicide among the soldiers. That is uh, one of the controversies about the battle, and I talk at the end about the fact that we don't I don't know that that happened. I think it's quite plausible that when it got down to the end, you know, there's a, there's a, a famous trope in Western stories of, of, you know, save the last bullet for yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it must have at the end uh, to those guys, that handful of guys who were left, surrounded on all sides, been obvious that they weren't going to make it. And I think a few of them probably did make this. The you're not going to become a prisoner of war. You are not going to be a POW. Um, they were watching their uh, their fellow soldiers. Uh, you know the way these guys die if they don't get shot with an arrow is they get hacked to death. Um, you're getting bludgeoned and you're getting killed with with uh, with war clubs and and hatchets. Yeah, like torn limb from limb. Torn limb from limb. And so it's not at all implausible to me that that some of them at the end chose to, to commit suicide instead. And two of those people that the, the suicide speculation sort of exists around are Fetterman and Brown, right? That's right. And uh, there, there is contrary evidence, which, I'll, which I also talk about at the end of the book. Uh, there is a, a, there's a, there's a Lakota warrior who claims to have killed Fetterman in, a, in, a, in an account that is quite plausible, I think. Um, and there is also some evidence from the post-surgeon that Fetterman did not have wounds consistent with suicide. That piece I find a little bit less plausible because it's not like this was Quincy Jones, uh, you know, autopsy on these soldiers. <laughs> For one thing, this, the, the post-surgeon was not a 
forensic surgeon. He was a post-surgeon and he had 80 bodies brought in and and all the bodies were, were mutilated too, with the exception of, of, of one soldier. So I don't find it particularly plausible that the post-surgeon was able to tell how somebody died. Mm-hmm. I think there is a, a credible uh, potential that, that, that Fetterman was actually killed by, by one of the Lakota warriors as opposed to committing suicide. And so 81 soldiers dead. Yep. How many warriors? Different accounts. Probably uh, somewhere around 30, I think, is a, is a pretty good guess. Maybe, maybe more than that. But, I mean, there – and uh, you talked, uh, Stephen, about the, the two civilians who had the Henry rifles. Most of the evidence of, of, of native deaths were in a semicircle around the stones, the rocks that these two civilians sheltered behind in the early part of the battle where they tried to – to hold out for a while with those Henry rifles, and there were some real hard asses too. And they yeah. were they were they were Civil War veterans. They they had good weapons. And they knew how to use them. And there's a lot of evidence that they they killed quite a few at that part of the battle. In the rest of the battle, I don't think that there were nearly as many uh, of the Native Americans killed because they, you know they just they, the army just wasn't organized in any way to to mount an effective defense at that point. Yeah, it was you, all running. You talk running about battle. like, you know, these guys with single shots, like they'd shoot a shot and then people would just swarm them and by hand drag them down off their horse and cut them up. Well, I mean, I've fired these muzzle-loading guns before as I'm, I know you guys have. And it's not an easy, fast thing to load a muzzle loader, even if you're good at it. And to to do that with hundreds of uh, warriors running towards you and arrows flying around and people dying all around you. And especially when they, they weren't in any kind of an organized line or position, I just don't think those guys fired their guns very many times. I think they got a, probably got a shot or two off and then, and then their gun was a, was a club. Mm. This, this is an ignorant question, but like, in the aftermath of this, what happens to the guns that the soldiers had? Did, did the warriors swoop in and clean some of that stuff up? They did. They uh, they gathered all those weapons up, and you know, and that was as you would imagine. They would they would gather everything of use off the battlefield before they before they left. There's a saucy detail from the Little Bighorn battle where the Seventh Cavalry was carrying a gun that had a a newer gun that had a distinct sound. That set it apart, you know. You know, you can tell like different kind of like yeah. bigger guns, smaller guns, yeah. right? Um, and the the people that weren't caught up in that battle, but were were surrounded on another ridge line, yeah. The next day, realized that they were being shot at with their gun, with the gun that they recognized <laughs> as their own, and that was the early clue of yeah, what might have uh, happened, uh, the, maybe, of what might have happened to well. Custer's command. That's, that's <laughs> like, wild. Where'd they get those? Well, talking about. The guns that they had and, and, and 10 years, it's interesting because in 1866, in, in this battle, m- most of the, a lot of the, of the uh, Native American warriors did not have uh, rifles or the rifles they had were single shots and they preferred to use their, their bows and arrows because they could fire so much more rapidly. By 1876, 10 years later, Battle of the Little Bighorn, a lot of the 
of uh, the Native American warriors had Henry repeating rifles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a gunfight. Yeah, but the U.S. Army still gave their their their, their soldiers at at that point had had mostly 1873 Springfield either rifles or carbines, which were those stupid trap door single shot. They fired a metal cartridge, but they they were single shots and had to be loaded, you know, one shot at a time through a trap door in the in the breach. And they were, by all accounts, not great guns. And, and the army just had a doctrinary belief in that era that if you gave a soldier the ability to fire rapidly, that they would waste their shots. Mm. And so this, instead of giving him Henry rifles, they gave him eventually guns that fired a metal cartridge, but still single shots. I can't remember what museum I was at, but it had some firearms. I can't remember what tribe it had them, but um, they were demonstrations of their gunsmithing where they'd get these and then keeping them going right. and stocks put back together yeah, with, with rawhide, rawhide yeah. barrels, like barrels fashioned to stocks with rawhide yeah. wrappings and filed pieces. You know, well, you'd get these things and maybe even got it broken. Yeah. And then finding a way to just to keep them Well, you think about the, I, I portray Jim Bridger uh, there, there was a great thing on Instagram yesterday from the Montana State Historical Society, which has Jim Bridger's Hawken at the Montana State Historical Society in in Helena. And I, one of my goals in life is to go there and, and have somebody let me hold that because I just think that would be a really cool thing to hold Jim Bridger's Hawken. But he apparently still had a Hawken in this era. And I have a fictionalized scene between him and Beckworth where Beckworth is making fun of him for still using a, an old Hawken rifle. And part of his defense uh, in the book I have is is that he's used to it and he knows how to fix it. He knows how it works. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that for somebody like that, an old timer in particular, that having a gun that you knew every bit of it and that you knew that if it broke down, you had some chance of being able to fix it, even on the frontier, as opposed to the complexity of a of a, a repeating rifle system for an old timer might be like I don't I don't want to deal with that. I've, I've like I've told the story a thousand times, but I was with an Amerindian group in South America, and they had sixteen they had a sixteen gauge shotgun, a break open sixteen gauge shotgun, and they only had twelve gauge shells. So they would in getting ready to go hunt at night, they would take that twelve gauge shell, cut it open take a leaf and pour the shot into a leaf. Make their own. Get the wad out, pour the powder into a leaf, knock the primers with the same, the primers are compatible, knock the primer out, put the primer into the 16 gauge, pour the powder in. Unbelievable. Build their own shells. Yeah. Use like this little, they'd make this little leaf thing to act as a wadding, put the shot in, melt a candle, steal the whole thing (laughs) off with candle wax. They do two or three of those and head off into the jungle. Oh my gosh. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It's like good ingenuity, right? That's very good ingenuity. Speaking of ingenuity, one of the things that is fascinating to me is the cannon technology of that era. And we were talking before about how wars are a a great booster of, of innovation, especially on weaponry. And one of the things I learned about working at Fort Laramie National Historic Site as a teenager is, as I said, we fired these this 1841 mountain howitzer twice a day. And I was amazed to learn at the sophistication of cannon technology in that day. And I had always thought of a cannon as shooting out a solid, either a solid cannonball, you know, to knock down walls, or they would, they would use 
grape shot, which is basically like turning a shotgun into a cannon into a big giant shotgun. But one of the the weapons or one of the options they had with cannons, even in that era, is something called spherical case shot. And that was a, it looked like a cannonball, but it was hollow on the inside and the inside was filled with smaller cannonballs and gunpowder. And there was a fuse that was on the top of the cannonball that could be cut to blow up at different ranges. And when the cannon would go off, the the flame from the ignition would light that fuse in the front of the cannonball. And then it, as the cannonball flew down range, the fuse would burn in. Mm-hmm. And at the appointed range, you know, a thousand yards, for example, blow up and and all of those cannibal or the 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 musket balls inside of the cannonball would then disperse on the battlefield. I mean it was a that's an incredibly sophisticated weapon. Uh and there's a lot of mathematics that go sure behind yeah. that. And and in fact in that era oftentimes the smartest guys at West Point were made artillerymen because of the high technology of the day was artillery and mathematics. And so if you were smart and could do math, you were an artilleryman. And the, and in the days leading up to this fight, they had the, the tribes kind of had to learn to scout and deal with those guys trying to touch those cannonballs off over their heads all the time. Yeah, because I think it was surprising, obviously, to the to the tribes that there was the ability to set these charges off with that kind of precision. You know, a thousand yards away from the walls of the fort, it's one of the reasons why there are very few battles in history where. Native American tribes attack a fort, and that's the classic kind of John Wayne, uh, yeah. you know, movie. But that didn't happen very often because the tribes were smart enough to know that the fort was the place where all the advantages were with the army, whether it was hiding behind walls and shooting outward with long-range rifles or or cannon. And what they were smart enough to know is they needed to draw the army out onto their terrain, and that's of course exactly what they do in in this story. And a, a follow-up attack on the fort never happens. Like after we have these 81 dead soldiers, 30 dead warriors, they, they don't then go and try to take over the fort. They didn't. Cause I think they still, I, for one thing, I think they felt like they had fulfilled the prophecy that they were seeking to fulfill, but also because I think they still respected, even with the force that they had gathered, the strength of the, of the cannon at the fort and, and the soldiers that remain there, but they do end up winning yeah. that war. Yeah, like the, yeah, we keep comparing to Little Bighorn, but Little yep. Bighorn was like a very pirate victory. Very, I mean, very pirate. They, even in winning, they knew they had lost. Yeah. They dispersed yep. and went into hiding. But in this, like, for a while, they so, kind of won. Including getting a new treaty uh, where the U.S. Army agrees, and I, this is the only time I ever know of this happening, and it didn't last very long, but it happened, it lasted for a while. At, because of the Fetterman fight, and, and it's interesting, actually, because the politics of the United States in 1876 are are very different from the politics of the United States in 1866. In 1866, after the Fetterman fight, keep in mind it's only a year after the basically a year after the end of the Civil War, and the politics of the of the U.S. at that point are like, we don't want to go fight a war out on the frontier, and so this Fetterman battle happens, and Red Cloud, predi- I think rightly predicts that if he can inflict a massive defeat, that maybe he can scare 
scare the whites off for a while. Yeah, and they, that's they exactly abandoned the fort. They signed a new treaty. They abandoned the Montana road. They abandoned the three forts. The, the tribes come in and burn those three forts, including Fort Fetterman, to the ground. And really, for a period of years, at least relative to what's going to happen later, the, the tribes win back the Powder River hmm. Valley and other places, including, uh, including the Black Hills. In 1876, the politics of the country have changed. And what if they had the foresight to be like, yeah, we want it, but it's not going to last. I think they must have been worried. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's a really interesting mm-hmm. question. But by 1876, when the Little Bighorn defeat happens, and this, I love this fact of history, the news of the Little Bighorn, Little Bighorn is June 25th, 1876. The news of the Little Bighorn reaches Washington, D.C. on July 4th, 1876, the hmm. exact 100-year centennial of the country. And it is a turd in the punch bowl of that celebration. And the reaction of the country at that point is, we're not going to let this stand. And at, from that point on, it's total war against the tribes. And in, in a year and a half, the war against the Northern Plains Indians is over. And Crazy Horse has been forced to uh, surrender on a reservation. Sitting Bull has fled into Canada. Uh, 1877 is the year of the Nez Perce. The yeah. They're defeated. It's over. And so once the U.S. really turned its full military force on the war, it was pretty inevitable. I, I came across something really interesting in the research for this. The, there's, I, I read that the total population of all the Plains tribes in the 1860s was probably about 76,000. Really? Of the Lakota, of the, there were probably about 16,000, of which there were about 4,000 Lakota fighting men. Hmm. So think about that. The U.S. at that time had 31 million people. During the Civil War, the U.S. had, there was a standing army of 2.1 million people on the, on the north and 1 million people on the south. So when you think about those numbers, once the U.S. kind of decided we're not going to let the stand anymore. It wasn't going to. And that's exactly what happens after 1876. The fort, like following the days of the battle, they have to be on edge, right? Because they don't, they don't evacuate immediately. They're not gone the next day. It's, there's an amazing story that I don't talk about in the book, but we talked about all the time at Fort Laramie. Uh, after the, after the battle, they are afraid that they're going to be attacked. And of course they've just lost, you know, half their fighting force. And so they're, they, Maybe Red Cloud could have overtaken that fort if he'd been willing to kind of, you know, do a World War I-style fight against uh, an entrenched position. I don't know. But they're worried about that. And so Colonel Carrington sends a rider out from Fort Phil Kearney to Fort Laramie. It's in the middle of a blizzard. And th- this guy over, his name is Portuguese Phillips. That's Phil's great-grandfather. <laughs> His name is Portuguese <laughs> Phillips, and he rides through a blizzard. I can't remember the exact number of miles, but it's hundreds of miles in a blizzard. It takes him like 48 hours, and he literally arrives at Fort Laramie on in the middle of a Christmas Eve party. So I guess it took him that long, between the 21st and the 24th, three days. His horse dies 
in front of the unmarried officer's quarters building where they're having a Christmas party, and he staggers into this Christmas party with the news of the of the Fetterman fi- of the Fetterman fight, and then Fort Laramie sends out troops to 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 reinforce the fort. Horse dies but out front. Horse dies literally easy to get off that way in front. Easier yeah. to dismount. Uh, the poor horse step uh, dies in front. The name of the building is is Old Bedlam. It's a fort at at it's a it's a building at Fort Laramie that was the enlisted or the unmarried officers quarters. What was that guy's name? Uh, Portuguese Phillips. What what end up happening to him? I don't know, but there's a monument to him at uh, Fort Laramie for making that ride. And the fort, meanwhile, is prepped for like a worst case scenario, and they have explosives rigged up and yeah, like a breaking case of emergency thing. Yeah. Right? So Carrington is so worried about them being overrun that he uh, la- he comes up with a plan, and the the they stored the powder, the armory uh, at the in the middle of Fort Phil Car- was in in the middle of Fort Phil Carney in like a dugout kind of uh, building where they stored all the powder. And the plan was that if the walls were breached, all of the women and children would go into the go down where the gunpowder was, and they would set the powder off and blow it up, so that the they would not suffer the the death that they would otherwise suffer if the if the fort were overrun. But they Man. were so worried about that that they actually that was the they had a plan for that. Be a tough fuse to light, man. It'd be a tough fuse to light. That's on the call this podcast episode. <laughs> Make a note of that, Karen. <laughs> All right. The book is like, you can buy the book right now. Right now. Just buy it. It'll ship to you the next day or whatever. Everywhere books are sold. Everywhere books are sold. Tell people how to find you. Are you do you do social media? Yeah, do? I do. Uh, I My kids think I'm not very good at it, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I'm on, uh, because of Karen, I'm on Instagram. Uh, go. so on Instagram, I'm M W punk. That's P U N K E. And on Twitter, I'm M punk P U N K E. And the book is called, the book is called Ridgeline. And you can go ask your local bookstore, Amazon. Anywhere what if you, you want to listen to Barnes and Noble, which my mom's husband, um, calls books and nobles, um, <laughs> Barnes and Noble. What if you want to listen to it? There is a great audio version. Oh, of did you this. read it? I did not. Uh, I read a little. I read the historical notes uh, at the end. Who they hired to read it? Soap opera actor. A great guy. This I love this. I love this uh, that this person does it. The the person who reads this book is is a Lakota oh. named Tatanka Means. Okay, I like that. Uh, he's the son of Russell Means, and he. Oh, yeah. oh really? Yeah, from the no American kidding. Indian movement. Yeah. You're kidding yeah. me. Oh, I love that. And he is a he is wow. an, a Native American actor and uh, and does a great job wow. reading it. And oh. so yeah, there's the audiobook version that Did that you try does. to read it and they wouldn't let you? I did not. <laughs> I I didn't think I would be very good at at reading the dialogue and things like that. Mm. I mean, it'd be one thing to read a nonfiction book and I, I read the historical notes at the end, like I say, and I can do that. But I don't think I'd be very good at at like giving the right intonation to the arguments. They also, and this was kind of interesting. The the parts of the book that are uh, with the character of Francis Grumman, mm-hmm. which are yep. in the book written as journal entries, they hired a uh, a a woman actor oh, to good, read yeah. those parts. So it, it actually works yeah, out. Nice. Uh, uh, I think it I think it's a good audio book. Um, I didn't get to read my first 
books and then they <laughs> sold my they sold my audio rights random house sold for my buffalo book they sold my audio rights to this thing i think it was called brilliance audio which weirdly was um not far from where i grew up i think it was whatever the hell they were called they did a lot of audio and they hired some soap opera guy to do it were i got you, those i got pretty pleased oh my god listen <laughs> I, I remember getting that thing in the mail and putting it in and the second the second that guy opened his mouth <laughs> i couldn't get across the I couldn't get across the living room fast enough to turn it off. I was like, that's not how it sounds. That's uh that's then, tough. That's pretty personal. They had the they had ten years. They had the audio rights for ten years. Oh man. So at the end of that ten years, um, my publisher got back my audio rights and I got to go down and read my own damn book. Oh, that's that's a good thing. Ugh. Well for that for for your books in particular, it's so much your voice that I think it'd be really hard to have somebody else do it. It, so, yeah, it was real, real painful. But I'm glad you're happy with it. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good audio book. I mean, I, uh, I, I, people have the choice if they prefer their books in audio form. It's, it's there. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Ridge Line is it? Am I saying I'm, Just, I'm adding the? It's no, not, the no article. It's Just Ridge Line. Ridge Line, a novel. Michael Punk, and again, Punk with the E on the end. That's right. Thank you. Can I tell you one final story? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell me. <laughs> I grew up in South Dakota. And I took great pride in, like, the history of Deadwood and the, the western part of the state when I was a kid. Read all the books. Knew all the figures. And when I went to college, which was 2011 and 2015, whenever we would, like, take a shot at a bar or something, you got to say a cheers, right? I'd always cheers to Hugh Glass because then it allowed me, like, a couple minutes to tell the story of Hugh Glass, <laughs> which is just one of my favorite stories. Did you meet a lot of girls like that? <laughs> I already had uh, my wife. <laughs> No, but I'd get to entertain people with this cool story. That was like my story. It It was like my story. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And then the movie came out Uh in 2016. Uh Sorry. And no longer can I like give that toast to people. (laughs) So you you robbed it from me. (laughs) Well, I'll buy you. I'll buy you a beer to try and compensate. Or just why you tip them off on some. You're you're a Western history. Yeah, give me something new that I can on some hot stories. Entertain folks. We'll come up with some. We maybe do Portuguese Phillips or something. Oh yeah, like here's the Portuguese Phil. Well, actually, know his grandson. Who knows how many locals in what northern Wyoming you robbed of. The, the Ridgeline story now when they're taking a shot at a bar and they can uh, have this couple minutes to sort of tell the, the Fetterman battle. Here's the Fetterman. My apologies to any of those people. I have, <laughs> I have a feeling, though, that, uh, that most Wyomingites will like this story being told. I think so. I'm going to start a new segment called Spencer's Pickup Line. <laughs> <laughs> Pickup advice from Spencer. What you do, you see? Um, quickly, speaking of movies, is this going to be turned into a well, Cinematic. I hope so. Uh, we have optioned it to the same company, Anonymous Content, that optioned and produced The Revenant. Uh, so they are great filmmaking company. They have optioned it. We're looking at it initially more as a scripted series, mm-hmm. as That's opposed a good to. Move. Uh, uh, I think the story. This story is is too big, or it, you could do it as a as a feature film, and I can imagine a, a good one, but. I would love to have the opportunity to tell it in an even longer form of a scripted series. Yep. Did I tell so, you John LaCarre's quote last time you were here? N- uh, no. I didn't? Well, wait a minute. I think it was his. Remind me. Um, having your book made into a movie is like watching an oxen turned into a bullion cube. It is a collaborative process, and you better be ready for that when you sign the option check. <laughs> Like, really, that's all there was to it, huh? That little square Uh, thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I have higher higher hopes than that. <laughs> you can do a lot with a series. That's true. I think you can. Well, and there's so many great. There's so much great storytelling being done through scripted oh, series yeah. today. Yeah. That, yeah. That Plus, it, I'm just jealous. Fun. I just said that because I'm jealous. I'm trying to make myself feel better. <laughs> I want to have some Wild West movies made. I got to write a Wild West book. You got to write that. Um, all right, Michael Punk, thank you very much for coming on. Thank Everybody, you guys. go have get Ridgeline. I know we talked. We told the whole story, but we didn't even – we didn't because how, how it takes 20 hours to read a book, right? It does. Yeah, yeah. for me. So you don't know crap yet. From listening to this. This is There's a lot notes, untold. Man. There's yeah. a lot untold. 20 to the leading hours ahead, folks. All right, so you'll write another book and come back in, I don't know, two years? I would love to. Okay, standing uh, standing invite. All right, thank you for that. So that, that'll motivate you. I will. That, that is a big motivator. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> All right, thank you. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount.